Hey everybody, today your auto talks through episode 102 of the podcast. And you can believe that, folks? 102? Oh my goodness, I don't even know how we've been able to pull this off. But anyway, I think by now, after 101 episodes, you know the drill. We're going to be answering your questions submitted to the email address, questions at rotto.com. First, we'll do game-related stuff near the end of the game section. Jen will join me for a question or two. And then the second half of the show will be personal stuff. Oh, wait. Yeah, my apologies to Joseph. Your email came in just a little late after Jen and I had already recorded. And also, when you get to the end, my apologies, I think, to Kat and Daniel. I didn't quite get to all of your stuff, but I'll save the rest of it until next month. But uh, it should be a good episode, folks. So hang on, and we'll be right back. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. All right, let's get to it, folks. Starting with Kat, who says, Hi, Rod, I hope you're well. Here's a bunch of questions. I don't mind if you don't answer all of them on the next podcast. There's, there's quite a lot. I know you have fluctuations in questions from month to month, so you might want to spread them out. No, Kat. We're getting everything or we're getting nothing done today. Uh, I'll worry about questions for next month and next month. Today, you've got questions, I've got answers. Although, uh, you kind of intermixed your personal and political ones with the game ones. So, we're kind of jumping around, skipping numbers one and two. Those will come later in the podcast once Jen joins me. And going right to question <clears throat> number three. Co-op games having one to four player counts. I've never understood the problem with this. Player count surely means number of players, not characters, right? If one human can sit at a table and play a game, then surely it's a one-player game. Whether they have to control one, two, or eight characters like Sleeping Gods. I actually find it somewhat gatekeeping the hobby and keeping solo players out. No one can do infinite research on games. If a, player, if a game says two to four, then a solo gamer will probably scroll past, whereas one to four doesn't deter... People who are looking for games that play... Oh, I forgot. This is from last month, isn't it? There was a question about this. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot about it. Because life has lo time has lost all meaning for me. Anyway, though. All right. And honestly, I don't remember what the question was. I do not remember what I said in response... Um, anyway, two to four player co-op games don't always mean it can be played solo like you've mentioned. Right, okay, so I guess last month I said, boy, I'd really prefer... Um, co-op games, it, uh, yeah, oh, I, I will be honest. Oh, no, let's finish. Let's finish, and then uh, uh, I'll answer. Right. A -D -T -T. A two to four player co-op games don't always mean it can be played solo, like you've mentioned. I'd rather a solo gayer see one to four on a box uh, and then find out you have to control two characters, which they don't like, then move on, then move on to something else com uh, completely than a solo gamer. Not even uh, then a solo game. Not even look at the game because they assume it doesn't support solo. Your other point: the co-op games shouldn't have one to four because they weren't designed solo. Uh, they were designed to be cooperative. I don't agree with either. Firstly, 
I think we should let people make their own choice whether they want to play this game solo, even uh, though it was designed as two or more. The other consideration is that players count is something not correct anyway. Many two to four player games suck at two, and sometimes we're great at two, but not at other player counts. So if the standard isn't applied across all board games, then we should allow one to four to be on the box. Well. I can't imagine I said no. It is verboten. No publisher is allowed to put a one player on the box unless I, Rotto, the gatekeeper of all solo experiences, uh, you know, of course, obviously, you know, do whatever they want. And I solely see your point that uh, it would be a shame for a solo gamer looking for a good experience who does not mind having to control multiple, uh, you know, basically play a multiplayer game in a solo mode. But here's the deal. A player looking for that, if they see it's a co-op game, they know. It's implicit. Every co-op game in existence that does not have hidden information like Hanabi or The Crew or something like that, every um, non-hidden information game, which is the vast majority of co-op games, are implicitly solo-friendly. It, it goes without saying. And, um, and you pointed out the problem with saying, no, 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 this is a one-player game. And then somebody buys the game, pays 60 bucks, gets it home and said, what? This is literally the two-player game. And it, I mean, I have seen rule books for co-op games that literally say, oh, to play solo, just control two characters. And I think that's not good. I think that's bad. I think that is more than likely not going to leave a bad taste in their mouth when they said, no, I bought this $60 game because I want a solo experience. I don't want a kind of half-baked, well, you can just, uh, you know, play it. Um, you know, it's really, everything about this game was designed for people to work together and solve problems together and coordinate, and you'll just have to emulate that all on your own. I think it is appropriate for, I mean, well, here's the deal. It's less of, I don't care that much about what's on the box at the end of the day. You know, caveat emptor, buyer beware and all that. I, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. What bugs me more is the lackadaisical attitude of, oh, well, we'll just go on ahead and slap one player on the box and not even do anything to make it work better for solo gaming. As you yourself point out, often it's kind of ridiculous. And I've mentioned in many of my videos, boy, this game should not uh, advertise itself as a two-player game. Uh, yes, functionally it works, but it really, you should not play this for less than three. I... I've, I've, I feel the same way. Yes, publishers can put whatever they want on the box. They can say 10 unicorns uh, can play this game. Doesn't matter to me as much as do the work. If you want to truly take Pandemic and make it a solo experience, well, do what they did in... I, want, I don't think it was in the, on the brink... I think it. I think it, which which expansion was it? I think it was in the lab that finally introduced the CDC variant, where I can truly play. I at all times since it first came out, anybody can play Pandemic solo. You just have to play it as a multiplayer game by yourself. And to me, that feels suboptimal. That feels subpar. In the same way, a game with a crappy two-player mode, uh, you know, feels lousy. I I, I think. I think Pandemic played solo is not what it should be. Eventually, 
I was probably Tom Lehman, came up with a specific solo mode, and I'm pretty sure, I mean, it might have been in the Hinterlands expansion, I'm pretty sure it was in the In the Lab one, where I'm just going to play one player, I have one character, and I'm working with the CDC, which is a special character that doesn't move around the world, but basically gives you extra actions you can do, extra interactions you can have when you go to a, uh, you know, a research base, that you can interact with the CDC, which is like a different set of cards that you can trade. So it emulates the functions of a, of, a, of a multiplayer game, but in a uniquely solo way that does not feel like a compromise. <clears throat> and I think that is superior. I have played Pandemic. Straight Pandemic is a two-player game. I have played Pandemic with the CDD expansion. The, C, the CDC expansion is hugely superior as an experience. And that's when I think... I mean, I... I, I believe you shouldn't put on the box, the game will support X number of players unless it supports it well. I have on more than one occasion said this game should not say two players on the box because clearly it was not meant with that in mind and the two-player mode is less than ideal. I feel that should apply towards co-op or solo as well. Treat the solo player not as an afterthought, but as somebody who you want to give a full, well-rounded experience to. Make Do the extra work, and um, you'll make it something special for them, because their money is just as valid as anybody else's. I guarantee you, Pandemic and many other co-ops are tested and tested and tested at two and three and four. And, oh yeah, I guess you could play it solo, but it's not like we ever gave it any thought, which is kind of implicit. And to me, when a game does that, and I have seen cooperative games that when I get to the end, because I'm thinking, oh yeah, hey, that was Jen, I had a really fun time playing this. I might want to film it solo though, so folks can see what the solo mode is. And the solo mode is play it as a two-player game where you control two characters. When they say that in the rule book, I... I have to give them a demerit. You know, no gold star for them because they took the lazy way out and they did not treat their co-op fans with the same respect that they treated um, the two, three, and four player fans. So we're just going to have to agree to disagree, Kat. Again, I'm not saying the publishers can't put whatever they want on the box. I'm just saying... Don't put it on the box unless you actually do the work. I personally believe that that is the way it should go. Okay. Next up, uh, it, all right, uh, or question four from Kat. Is there a board game Kickstarter bubble? And if so, when will it burst and why? <sighs> I mean, the world's never really seen anything like Kickstarter. It's kind of hard to say. And the reality is, I, oh, I mean, I guess I can answer that question by saying I don't think Kickstarter is going anywhere. I think Kickstarter is over time becoming the backbone of the board game industry. Board games would not be anywhere near as good right now if it weren't for Kickstarter. And in fact, I just, in the last um, Rotto Recap show, in case you don't know, Kat, it's a show I film weekly and post on the YouTube channel on Sundays where I tell everybody, hey, what were the videos I did over the uh, last week for the channel? What videos did I find on other channels? And then also, what new games did I find? In the most recent recap for, what date was it? The recap for the week of the 12th to the 18th of November, 2020. One of the videos I pointed out was from James Hudson, um, you know, the designer of Wonderland War, and you know, he's a designer publisher. He's been doing it for quite a while. He's hugely successful, and he did a video um, 
doing counterpoints to people on Facebook who are arguing that big board game publishers like Cool Mini or not should not be on Kickstarter. That it is fundamentally, it is like morally wrong for them to do so. And, um, you know, James laid out in very specific and very knowledgeable detail, because he's a successful board game publisher himself, why Kickstarter is an incredibly valuable tool to ensure higher quality games for players. And honestly, I believe I believed and agreed with every single thing he said. Now, I could try to paraphrase all that, but I won't do anywhere near as good a job as James, because again, he's a professional. So I will just point to that. Again, if you go check out my recap video from the 12th to the 18th. Um, you know, crowdfunding to mitigate risk and to allow for more ambitious production is here to stay. Is it going to explode? I don't think so. I don't know why it would. Um, it, you know, what, 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 what can I draw parallels to? Really, the biggest thing, I'm old enough to remember when the bottom fell out from the Atari 2600 market in the early 80s because it was hugely successful. And then, you know, publisher after publisher after publisher dogpiled on and ended up creating so much crap, so much garbage for the Atari 2600 that uh, people pretty much abandoned and, you know, the, the, the video game market for a few years collapsed until Nintendo came along and revitalized it. Um, I'm oversimplifying, but you know that's basically the uh, gist of it. Now, that's a fundamentally different situation that we find ourselves in compared to today with board game manufacturers using Kickstarter. Because in the, that gold rush era, um, the, the market imploded because things got worse and worse and worse. And just became, uh, the term shovelware was born. The exact opposite is happening here. Uh, Kickstarter is allowing for games to become better and better and better. So there's not the same external pressure to say, oh, this whole thing is going to fail and explode. At least I don't think so. A lot of people say, oh my gosh, can we please stop with 90% of the Kickstarter market being these big, bloated, over-the-top, um, you know, heavy-budget games where they're just throwing as much plastic into the box as they can and not really providing value. Um, you know, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that argument in terms of the value. Everybody values things differently. I don't want to gatekeep for anybody who loves a lot of plastic. But more importantly, I say that that is a gobbledygook argument because the vast majority of board games that raise funding on Kickstarter and uh, GameFound and whatnot are not those kind of games. And people just ignoring the fact that the majority of games don't make over 20000 They make enough for some small independent um, you know, dreamer to make their dream come true. And uh, and then they put something out that it turns out to be lovely, and it finds an audience for it, and that's great. I see nothing but upside here. I do not understand why there is such a hue and cry against it. And I'm not saying you are, Kat. You're just asking the question, is it going to burst? I think it would burst if it was leading to a drop in quality, but it's not. As James um, you know, mentioned in that video I uh, talked about, uh, games are only getting better because of Kickstarter, by and large. There's exceptions to every rules, of course, but on the whole. Okay, then we jump to question seven. Uh, again, five and six will be in the personal section. Seven, I am surprised you haven't tried Earthborn Rangers still. Why? Uh, I was put off a little as it seems to shy away from the more mature themes, but different strokes and all. Uh, it seems like a perfect game for Care Bears where you would try to work in harmony with your surroundings and overcome obstacles rather than kill, blow up, etc. It's also heavy on exploration, which I believe you like after your epic Seventh Continent Final Thoughts video that was 51 minutes long. I do miss those days of super long board videos talking about just one game uh, that goes uh, and that goes on to my next question. Well, we'll come back to the next question. I would, 
Uh, I would love, love, love to try Earthborn Rangers. I believe I have it marked as a uh, two. Not like the absolute must-have of like the latest Feld, but well above just the standard. Yeah, I'd like to try it sometime. I would love to try it. The publisher at one point said they were going to send me a review copy. They never did. And I could chase them down. And, I mean, that's a decision I have to make for every game out there um, You know that uh, publishers don't send to me. How badly do I want to try this? Uh, um, and the thing is, I am always behind the eight ball. I have always got so many games waiting to be played, waiting to be filmed, that you know what? I'm going to prioritize those higher because the publishers valued my time. And I'm not saying Earthborn Rangers don't. Heck, maybe they did send me a review copy for coverage and it just got lost in the mail somewhere. You know, if you're listening out there, I think they isn't the publisher named Earthborn Rangers too, I forget. I mean, I would definitely still like to play the game, although unfortunately, now they're on the road, I won't be able to play it until the middle of next year when Jen and I get home. But yeah, you're right. Everything you just said is true. I would be, I would love to play this game. I have listed this game in several top tens, you know, Kickstarter roundups and all kinds of things. It looks fantastic. But the publisher just didn't think it was necessary to send me a copy of it. So I'll just move on to other things the publishers do want to send. Um, because I can't keep up with what's already coming through the door. It just doesn't make sense for me to go out and say, bring even more in that I can't keep up with. So that's kind of why it hasn't happened. Question eight. As you wind down and collaborate with more people um, from the wider Rotto Run-Through Network, do you think you'll ever return to something like that Seventh Continent video? I believe you've spoken previously on how there are certain games uh, you can't play or can't play as much as you would like because of work obligations. But as the makeup of the channel changes, could we see a comeback of more deeper commentary from you in particular? Your current format for longer run-through, shorter final thoughts uh, works well. But I feel like it may sometimes be constraining. Probably not a problem for Burger Canal or White Castle, but for something like Evenfall, I really wanted to hear more and more, but maybe I'm just being greedy. Bring back the one-hour-long final thoughts commentaries. There's only ever been a few of those. It's not like that was a common thing. And honestly, like the last one I think that happened with was... Uh, from Awakened Realms, Etherfield. And uh, I think, I don't remember for sure, I'd have to go back and watch my old Seventh Continent. I think that happens in cases where very popular videos from other channels have made it out there into the, uh, the, the, the board game media stratosphere that I have so strongly agree, disagreed with, vehemently disagreed with, that that gives me extra stuff to talk about. I don't know if I would have talked about e or, you know, Seventh Continent so, for so long if I didn't feel like I had to make counterpoints to whatever video I was responding to. I know that happened with Etherfield as well. Uh, and it's probably happened a few times over the years. Heck, probably any time you've ever seen a video, a Final Thoughts video that went for more than 30 minutes and I was by myself, chances are it's because I was late to the party and I think somebody else did the game dirty and I feel like I'm trying to rebalance the scales. So, I mean, I don't think that was ever something that was going to happen very often because that doesn't happen very often because more often than not, I'm usually one of the first um, channels covering games. Now, it's certainly possible that as time goes on, I mean, heck, maybe that won't be the case. 
maybe um, you know Shay or Kimberly or, or other people who might come onto the channel in the future. Who knows? Might um, you know be taking more of the front? Like I mean, Shay, just this month because of Jen and me getting on the road, I did not have time to get Kutnahora in evacuation. In in years gone by, I would have totally covered those myself. But because I did not have time, because we were embarking on this big road trip, I mailed them uh, down to Shay so he could get them covered because I did want them on the channel. I have since picked them back up. I'm going to play them now at some point when we're down in Mexico, but I feel like the content is already on the channel, so I'll just end up talking about it in the monthly roundup. But you know what? I mean, hey, when I eventually get to those, if I look and see that uh, somebody has done evacuation wrong or Kutnahora wrong, or, or, you know, or in a way that I disagree with, that I fundamentally think, wow, that incredibly popular video that's getting so many hits because it was a hit piece against this game totally misunderstands or mischaracterizes the game, I feel like I need to set the record straight. Some things, sometimes, maybe, that, maybe that'll happen more often. It's hard to say, though. But that's the thing. Don't, don't, don't fool yourself, Cat. It never happened that often in the first place when it boils right down to it. All righty. Anyway, number eight. You're often surprised when people prefer to watch you rather than someone else play the game. And I want to know more about why that is. I agree with you that other contributions, our computers are amazing, and that we get the same quality for whoever's doing a run-through. But it does make sense that people who subscribe to Rado want to see Rado. Uh, it's like me buying a cinema ticket to see Barbie, and when I get there, the film is elemental. Both cool films, uh, but that is not what I wanted or expected to see. People subscribe to a particular board game channel for very specific reasons, including style and personality. And while everyone is fun to watch, uh, you're all different, so I can understand why people have their preferences. Sure, of course, yeah. I mean, I, obviously, of, of course, people have their preferences. I don't think um, the uh, Elemental versus Barbie is, is really a correct analogy, though. Both excellent films. I'd uh, liken it more to, hey, you know what? I went to the, uh, the West End because I really wanted to see... Michael Fassbender in the remake of Guys and Dolls, just making something up. I actually, I saw Guys and Dolls on the West End many, many years ago with Ewan McGregor. So that was the first thing that popped into my head, but I just put Michael Fassbender in instead. Um, I really wanted to see that. And then it turns out the night I get there, he was sick. He had, uh, you know, he had food poisoning. And so the understudy uh, stood in. Am I going to be disappointed? Sure, of course. Am I still going to enjoy the play? Yes, I you know, and what when I say what I don't understand, it's not that I don't understand that people have preferences. Sure, of course, people like Coke, people like Pepsi, totally understandable. It's a you know, consumer taste drives everything. What I don't understand is people saying, "Oh, Rado didn't film it. I refuse to watch." And you would be shocked, perhaps, Cat, to find out how often that happens. Oh, um, Amy and Maggie covered. I'm a pass, thanks. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Amy and Maggie do such an amazing job. Everybody, I mean, I wouldn't have them on the channel if they weren't doing a great job. And, you know, I've trained all these people to, you know, do run-throughs in the style of, uh, you know, of, of a Rado run-through. I mean, you know, they all literally had to kind of do audition tapes. Uh, and, you know, and we did back and forth. But, you know, the, the, you know, the first thing that Amy and Maggie did on the channel, they, that was their fourth attempt. I think it was the third attempt of Shay, well, the first thing for him on the channel, I, I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so for people to say, oh, well, Rado didn't do it, therefore it's a waste of my time. I'm not going to get anything out of this video. It's like literally the only difference between me doing it and Kimberly doing it is... She uses slightly more cutesy language, and she has a higher-pitched voice than me. And sure, I understand why you'd prefer my deeper dulcet tones than her higher-pitched uh, helium squeak, let's say. 
fine, understandable. But to then say the video is worthless and not worth your time, that's what I'm saying makes no sense to me, Kat. And it sounds like you would kind of agree because you can still, even if you were hoping to see me, you can still appreciate when somebody else does the exact same thing that I was going to do. Because literally, I trained these people. They went through a seminar to learn how to do the Rado method. So that's really what I'm referring to there. I don't understand why people would have that response. It makes no sense to me. Uh -huh. Alrighty. Anyway, though, we move on to Chris. Thanks, Kat. We'll be back to you later. Question number one. I don't have anyone in my social network to play board games. My partner's gotten too busy with work and my local friends have moved away. Luckily, Solo exists. I'm having a hard time deciding what to play, though. Do you recommend any way for me to choose what to play? Yes, I have a big recommendation. I have many uh, campaign-style games. Frosthaven, Oathsworn, Aeon's End, Sleeping Gods, Roleplayer Adventures, etc. But I wonder if I should wait on those until I've got someone else to play. I don't know that... It, no, not necessarily. I mean, the reality is, if you started playing uh, Sleeping Gods and you were enjoying the heck out of it, and then you know, midway through a, you know, the campaign, somebody was able to join you, they'd be able to jump right in. I mean, that game is designed to be scaling from one minute, because there's always the same eight characters. But that's pretty much going to be true for all of them. Frosthaven, you... Well, Frosthaven, you can't play alone. Well, you can, but that gets back to that earlier question, um, that Frosthaven is not, in my opinion, Cat, in my opinion, not a true solo experience, except, of course, for the true solo missions that um, have been created for the individual classes. That happened for Frosthaven, right? No, it happened for Gloomhaven. I assume it happened for Frosthaven as well. Um, but anyway, yeah, I wouldn't hold back on that. What I was going to say is, do I have a recommendation? Yes, a very, 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 very strong recommendation. Chris, run. Do not walk to the Board Game Geek One Player Guild. I think, let me, let me find, I see how hard to find it. I don't think it's hard to find. If you literally just go to Google and do a search for Board Game Geek space One Player Guild, I bet you anything I'll take me right to it. Deet, deet, deet. It's thinking about it. Um, yes, it did. The first link off of Google is the One Player Guild on Board Game Geek. The One Player Guild on Board Game Geek is... Oops. Oh, I keep forgetting about this. What? Oh, I just pushed one. Sorry for people who are watching. I've got to, I've got to work on that. Anyway, where was I? I was back here on the podcast frame. Yeesh. Okay. You know, I'm going to pause for a second. I'm going to fix that because I don't want to mess that up again. Hold on, folks. Okay, yeah. Anyway, uh, the One Player Guild is one of the most active, if not the most active guild on all of Board Game Geek. Uh, they do an amazing job. And you should not be asking your question to me. You should be asking of them. Because I guarantee you, you will find the biggest, most positive, warm and welcoming, one of the most positive, warm and welcoming communities in the entire board game universe. And they will be able to help answer your question better than I could. Uh, that, that, that's all you need. Find that one player guild, subscribe to it, and it will become your best friend uh, in terms of board games. Alrighty. Anyway, uh, question two. I'm trying to decide, says Chris, for uh, on whether to just get rid of many of my games given my new situation. If I have something like 200 games, does that make sense without anyone to play with? Uh, should I keep them without a solo mode? Well, what's that Netflix show? I can't remember the name of it or the name of the, of the, of the nice lady who does it, but it's the thing about sparking joy, right? You should only keep things in your life that spark joy. That when you look... My wife's looking... Marie Kondo. Jen knows it. She's just right off camera, right over there. Marie Kondo's show, apparently that's her mantra. Um, you know, hers is all about helping, her show is help out people 
declutter and dehortify their homes and whatnot. And it's always a simple question. Does this spark joy? Does it, do you look at it and does it make you happy? That's all you got to ask yourself. If you look at those games, um, you know, and maybe you look at them and make you sad because you're not going to get a chance to play them, then get rid of them. Maybe you look at them because they make you happy because you have fond memories and you just like having them. You know, a, a big part of board gaming is just the collector aspect of having things that just spark joy in you. So to me, that's going to be my answer to that question. Grady says, what do I think is the current state of board game media and reviewers? It seems that your most popular videos on YouTube are from 7 to 10 years ago. Your channel is not alone in this. The Dice Tower seems very similar in terms of when they had their most popular videos and even Shut Up and Sit Down is in the 5 to 6 year ago range. Why do you think the most viewed videos from some of the most uh, popular review channels are from at least half a decade ago? Do you think that's reflecting the industry as a whole? Changes in YouTube? The need for reviews or something else? It's something else. And I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's competition. Uh, half a decade ago to a decade ago, when me and, uh, you know, Paul and Quinns and Tom and Lance and, um, oh, geez, I feel like I'm trying to remember, uh, you know, Joel, Eddie, and, oh, the, the Canadian girls. I can't think of, oh, they were so awesome. Starlet Citadel. I mean, when we all got our starts, um, boy, this is, that sounds really strong. I'll help a little bit. Uh, when we got our starts, there, there was like a dozen, two dozen of us. That was it. Now, there are literally, if not thousands, at least hundreds of channels vying for your attention. And it's, you know, you know we had a captive audience before. And now, you know, you know, any given game, yes, I'm going to be one of 50 channels covering that game instead of one of three channels covering that game. So, of course, back then... I was going to get a lot more eyeballs. Um, now, the thing that does surprise me, I've always kind of assumed, well, you know what? Yeah, there's a lot more people covering games. But at the same time, there's a lot more people uh, you know, discovering games, coming to the board game hobby. I thought that the uh, two would kind of you know, just keep on working their way up you know, in, in uh, you know, parallel. But that doesn't seem to be the case. But there is another thing. There's another thing because I think a lot of the new generation of board game fanatics who are coming in aren't coming to me or to Tom or to Shut Up and Sit Down or um, you know, Rodney or anybody. Actually, Rodney's kind of unique. I'll come back to him in a second. They're going to freaking TikTok because it seems like, uh, you know, you talked about, is this indicative of, you know, changes in the industry? No, I would say it's indicative in changes of consumer media consumption. The, uh, you know, I mean, it's weird. What was Twitter's thing? Vines. Vines were such a big deal, and they were so viral, and it was amazing that Twitter just cut them off. And then nobody else picked up on Vines until TikTok came along, and then everybody realized, oh my gosh, people want to see 30-second videos. People want to see a new video every 30 seconds, or 60 seconds, or 90 seconds, or whatever. And um, that is fundamentally changing the way that people consume online influencer media. Oh my gosh, has he, has he talked for 10 minutes? That's inconceivable. How could I possibly listen to anything for 10 minutes? I you know Because I expect to, the, the beginning and end of this video to come in under 60 seconds. And um, yeah. And you know, I mean, you'll notice, uh, we old guard, none of us are chasing after that sweet, lucrative TikTok audience, by and large. I mean, I could. I've thought about it. But, you know, I'm leaving that as a younger man's game. You know, Grant Lyon gets, you know, gets, you know, half a million views 
on some of his TikToks. And uh, yo, Alex, uh, yo, so two of the people that appear on my channel, uh, you know, Grant with his Grant's Greatest Games and Alex Hart of Minus Just a Game, you know, he teaches me games sometimes. You know, they both got YouTube channels, but that's not where they get their hits. They get their hits on TikTok, and that's where I should be too. And so I think it's a combination of there's just a lot more media, and a lot of it, uh, you know, the expectations have changed radically. You know, to cats, it was a cat earlier saying, bring back the hour-long videos. That is not what the audience wants to see at all. They want to say, bring on, bring on the 60-second videos, which is not something I'm personally interested in doing. I've thought about it a few times, trying to come up with something that I could find engaging to do, but uh, I just don't know. Um, but you know, I'm getting old and tired anyway. But anyway, yeah, I would say that's really why you're, those are the two big things that are leading such consequential changes across the board for all us old school. Oh, and then I mentioned Rodney. Not happening to Rodney. Rodney is just keep on rising no matter what because Rodney um, has almost the monopoly by having first mover advantage of teaching people how to play games. For my personal predilections, there are other channels that do it much better than Rodney. No offense to Rodney. I, I don't know if anybody does it more professionally and more polished than him, but uh, he is not the best teacher for my brain. Uh, there are other ones out there, but you know nobody can compete with Rodney because he's literally got a stranglehold. You know, and there are other channels out there, uh, uh, Neurontomob and... Um, uh, oh, uh, you know, gaming rules, and you know, there, there's so many others. I mean, heck, I'm trying to do them now. I was having Ryan Crichton of uh, Nights Around a Table, but he's gone back to work full time in the uh, video game industry. So that's why you haven't seen any videos from Ryan for a few months. I don't know if he if he's coming back or if he's if he's out. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, the exception to everything I just said is teaching how to play. Because if there's one thing that people need if they become board game fans is, teach me how to play the game. And you can't do that in 60 seconds. And while there are a lot of people competing for that pie, it is very difficult to compete with Rodney. Because, again, you know he's the king of the hill in that regard. And people say, well, why, why, why would I go watch anything else? Now, of course, Rodney, can only, he only does like, what, uh, like two or three a month. So there's room for uh, competition. Uh, but anyway... That, that's kind of, I think, what the state of that is. Good question. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alrighty, next up, James says, are you going to Dice Tower West again? Yes. We're driving down to the southern tip of Baja, and we are... Mm, sorry, very thirsty. Are going to be trying to schedule our trip so that we will be coming back north to go to Pacific Northwest, timing it such that we will hit Dice Tower West in Vegas on the way back up. That's something we only recently decided. We weren't sure when we left if we were going to do that, but we were pretty sure we are going to be there. 
Are there, all right, and I guess that was the question for James. Yep, um, probably the only convention I will be at in 2024. If you want to play a game with me, come to Dice Tower West in Vegas. I, uh, I have to admit, I'm, I'm excited to go back and see everybody, but I'm really excited to go to Vegas to see the Sphere. That is, I mean, if there's only, I mean, Sphere is on my bucket list now, and uh, I will cross that off my list next year. So, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, James, will you? Next question from James. Are there games you won't play because the theme alone, even if you know you would enjoy them otherwise? I'll never play Whitechapel again. It's a good hidden movement game in deduction, very tense, but I was playing as Jack the River and couldn't stand it when I won and evaded the police because I know what that means um, in real life. I don't judge anyone who does uh, play those games. Simply make me feel uncomfortable. I think it's because it's based on real-world events. Similarly, I can't play any World War games. I played one video game where you fight in the trenches and said, nope, too real. Uh, yeah, James, totally understandable. Yeah, there are definitely themes that are a big turnoff for me. And honestly, the, for me, the biggest one is games about alcohol. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm a teetotaler. I took one drink of a beer that my dad offered me when I was like five or six, thought it was disgusting, and have never drunk alcohol again, except when they sneak it into food. And it's weird. I, I, because I don't drink alcohol at all, I can always detect the faintest trace of alcohol in, in any kind of food prep. When everybody else says, what are you talking about? There's no alcohol. And I'll, I'll ask the waiter, was there alcohol in the pre-? Oh, yes, of course. I'm really surprised you can taste it. I'm super sensitive to it. And I don't like it. I just don't like it. It's weird tasting to me. But um, yeah, I come from a family of functional alcoholics. And so I have a hard time engaging with subject matter about distilling spirits uh, or brewing beer. So there are a couple games, you know, beer and bread is one, but there are lots of good beer games, beer making games. I'm just like, ah, I tried it and like, no, no, I just, and, and I, now it's just such a turnoff. It'd be a real rare exception that I would actually try. Weirdly, wine doesn't fall under that for me. I don't care about wine. I don't drink wine, but I don't have the personal association with wine. So, I mean, that's the big one I can think of as a subject that would just basically keep me at arm's length. There must be other ones. Um, oh, uh, you know, I'm certainly finding I have less and less patience uh, or interest in games where I am a colonizing force. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, especially with, with the events of the day, let's just say. You know, getting to role-play that, I mean... Some of my favorite games of all time. Santa Maria was in my top 25 games of all time. I recently got rid of it because I just don't think I could ever go back and enjoy it. The more, the more I really reckoned with what the actions in the game meant. So that's one for me as well. Uh, one where I am, um, you know, uh, and I know people say, well, why, why do you have a problem with being a colonizer, but you don't have a problem with being a killer? I don't like being a killer either. I don't want to play games where I have to kill things. I'd rather play things where, games where I build things. But you know what? Hey, we all have our lines, and maybe some people would find it hypocritical. But those are a couple off the top of my head that um, you know, really give me pause. Okay. Um, Matt says, have you been to any smaller game conventions, like a few hundred people in attendance? I haven't been to any of the bigger conventions, but I love the smaller ones. It's great just uh, playing games all weekend with a smaller convention. You run into the same people year after year, which is a lot of fun. I have been, um, yeah, a few times. Uh, most recently, we, you know, just a few weeks ago, we went to the first ever Funicon in Eugene, Oregon, because it was literally on the road as we were driving south towards Mexico. And so we swung in, swung in and everything you said is true. Had a great time. We might go back next year if we we're in the neighborhood. I don't know. Um, we did a few small ones when we were in Europe. 
Lyricon, and another one that I can't think of the name of. You wouldn't remember that one, honey, that had the pirate theme that year. I was just thinking it was the pirate one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been on a few, and yeah, they're great. Honestly. It was in um, Belgium. It was in Belgium, she says? Yeah, but Ghent. Ghent, it was in Ghent, and one year, like five or six years ago, it was themed after pirates. We went to that one. And again, it was a smaller one, you know, you know less than 500 people probably in attendance. And I totally get what you're saying, and I think that's great. Here's the deal. I don't need to go to that because the main reason I play games is to play games with that lady right over there who's just off camera who will be joining us later for um, the personal Q&A portion of the podcast. And, uh, yeah, whenever we go to these conventions, she is the one person I don't get to play with because she's working. She's there trying to sell her gamer glass. So it's nice to play with a bunch of strangers, uh, almost always of all of whom are fans. So that's always, I won't deny, that's that's a nice ego boost and all that. And and plus, not for nothing, one of the things I really like about going uh, and playing games with other people at conventions, I'm reminded I'm actually pretty good at board games. I actually win more often than I lose or place really well instead of just, you know, crash and burn. But when I play with Jen, I always end up losing miserably. So it's a good boost for my ego in other ways, too. So, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's not something we're really seeking out uh, um, because my real passion for gaming is playing with Jen. And I get to do that all the time anyway. But, yeah, I mean, they're certainly enjoyable. Um, really, I think, on the whole, they are superior to the big mega conventions. The only reason I like the mega conventions is because I can get all the new hotness in my hands and get it home and play it with Jen that much sooner. Next up, Matt says, In my opinion, who is the best designer at making a variety of games? We all know Uwe Rosenberg can make a great worker placement farming simulation, and Stephen Bell can make a great point salad, but who do you think of that doesn't uh, make the same game every game? My initial thought is John DeClaire. Literally, I was just thinking John DeClaire myself until I got to your sentence. Seems like every one of his games are quite different in mechanisms, all the way from Ready, Set, Bet, Edge of Darkness. Somehow they're all relatively great games. That's a great uh, choice. Another one. Um, hmm. I would, at one point, I would have said Dave Turchie. When he first started out, he was doing wildly different things. He has kind of gotten into a particular groove, though, but I would still give it to Dave Turchie as well. I mean, all his games are on the heavier, uh, you know, crunchier. Uh, end of the spectrum, but there's a wide variety. He'll do a war game, he'll do a Euro game, he'll do an adventure game, he'll do anything. But actually, of all of them, I think the one you've got to give the, the, the silver star, the gold medal, whatever it is to, for pure success at um, you know variety of designs, it's got to be Vlada Shavadl, right? Um, you know, code names... Bunny Bunny Moose Moose Guy also did Dungeon Pence, also did Through the Ages. I mean, forget about it. I mean, you know, his output, unfortunately, sadly, has really tapered off over the years. Um, you know, and, and you know, he's just set aside to help others, you know, fulfill their hopes and dreams. That's all great. But yeah, I mean, I don't think you could be, I don't think you could put anybody up against Vlada Shavadl at the breadth and width of what he has done and has been wildly successful almost every single time. i got to give it to Vlada. Okay, next up, Nash says, I wanted to pick your brain on publishers of board games, uh, especially well-known ones. Uh, A, says Nash, with all the competition and copycat design in board games today, why don't publishers, especially the established ones that have credibility in the industry, reach out to well-known board game reviewers uh, popular on YouTube, such as yourself and the Dice Tower folks, and others with the intention of paying you collectively to design a board game or games together? I mean, 
Granted, I'm no insider or reviewer myself. I just love board games. But from my point of view, doesn't it make sense? You independently and collectively have so much experience with breaking down the intricacies of games, uh, taking into account different weights and genres. Also, you're very in touch with the board game community at large via managing your own collective channels. I see the potential for a door to be opened into something very refined, a.k.a. better, or something new design-wise, perhaps. Ah, You continue on. Uh, I would think that would be a perspective idea or pitch from publishers. Let's get these great minds together and pay them to design a great game for us. Why, in your opinion, does this not occur? Or does it? Have you ever been propositioned by a publisher? Yes, I've been propositioned once. Not to be a designer, but to be an editor on their games. And I I thought that was very, very um, uh, flattering. I, I, I did not take them up on it, but maybe I will someday in the future. But no, I... I don't think having a critical eye, understanding the intricacies of board games and what works and what doesn't, I don't think that implicitly makes you a good designer. I don't think that at all. Um, I mean, uh, Roger Ebert, probably the most one of the most prolific, you know, cinema critics, and you know, Siskel and Ebert, they didn't make movies. Roger Ebert famously wrote a screenplay for a you know, really terrible, schlocky movie called Beyond the Valley of the Ga- Dolls, but he never made any movies. And that's because I'm sure he'd be the first to say, yeah, I, look, I, I, know, I know what I like, I know what's good, but I don't know how to make it. That's a totally different skill set. And, I mean, yeah, d- you know, Tom Vassell has designed a couple of games, and one of them is fairly well-received. But, you know, it's not like... It's not like he made code names when he did it, just because he had such a uh, breadth and depth of knowledge about games. You know, when he made, what was it, Sheriff of Nottingham, he just made a game that people really liked. And, uh, you know, I forget, The Vicious Fishes was his other one. I'll tell you right now, if anybody wants me to actually be the designer, don't waste your time asking, because I'll say no, because I'm relatively confident. Well, maybe I'd be good at it, maybe I wouldn't, but I certainly recognize it's a different skill set than the muscles I flex on a regular basis. So the only reason I think to do something like that would just be um, as a marketing gimmick. Look at this. Rodney Smith and Tom Vassell and uh, Quinns and Rotto designed a board game together. Don't you all have to buy it? Um, I don't know that that game would be anything better than what you would get from Uwe Rosenberg or John D. Clare or, or Elizabeth Hargrave or anybody else. Um, just because we play a lot more games doesn't mean we know how to make games great. So I, 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 I honestly just don't think it would work, and I think probably publishers realize that would be why they haven't done it. Question B. If I were contacted by a well-known publisher with a good track record who offered this opportunity, would what would you say? Is this realistic if the money was put forth by a publisher, or am I missing something due to my own ignorance? Well, I just kind of answered that on the previous one. No, I, I would not. Um, I, it's, it's a lot of work. I know enough about board games to know how hard it is, how incredibly mentally taxing, and I, how I don't want to have to play my game 300 times to make sure that you know, all the intricacies have been taken care of. I mean, that just doesn't sound like fun to me. I don't have it in me. I don't have the desire or the drive to do it. Other media people do. Uh, John gets games. He's designed a couple of card games. Uh, uh, um, the, the Delphs of Tantrum House. They designed a, an expansion for Time Stories. Like I said, Tom designed a couple of stuff. I think uh, Shove and Sit Down, they, didn't they design some expansions for some party game? So some of them have their net. I personally, I just don't have that bug. I designed games for two decades. I got that out of my system pretty, pretty thoroughly. So I'm not, I'm not dying to come back in. Okay, <clears throat> Olaf. 
It says, I was listening with interest <coughs> excuse me, uh, to your suggestion on how to rank games on a recent Q&A video, uh, which was the take a game in each hand, one game goes in the fire, the other one you keep forever, uh, and you will have no other games to play, which one do you keep? And keep repeating this process so you've ranked your games. I'm looking forward to this method with my personal 50 in a different way using the following method. Until now, I've used a different approach, which is assume there are two tables. Uh, one with the uh, first game set up with the ideal group of friends for that game, and the other is set up with the second game uh, for, and the ideal group of friends. Which would you sit down and play? So, yeah. I, the reason, yeah, you could do that. It's pretty much the same thing I'm doing. I'm just trying to do the more hardcore one because sometimes I'll want to play a game and sometimes I just won't feel like it, right? Uh, you know, it's just, oh, I'm just not in the mood for a big, heavy, crunchy game. So I'll play that other one. And therefore, it instantly breaks down when you are trying to compare a cute, light, little truffle of a party game versus some big, you know, monstrous, heavy, uh, um, you know, epic campaign game. How can you compare those two? By saying, oh, well, would I want to play this one or this one? That's going to vary from the time of the day to the time of the week to the time of the year. Which is why I approached it more from, no, only one of these will you ever get to play again and the other one is gone forever. Then make your decision. Because that implicitly includes the, the peaks and the valleys, the highs and the lows. So that's why I go that way. But I, you know, definitely try it your way. I mean, it might work. All right, anyway, uh, continuing on. Um, right, so Olaf continues. You, m your method will bring to the front the games that I can play with a, a large variety of people. I guess that's how you would do it. Me, that's immaterial to me because I would just base them on what I can play with Jen because that's the only way I play games. And have a lot of replayability while my method, up till now, allows for a niche of games that can only shine in certain situations. Uh, but when such situations arise, they shine with a capital N. See, I don't know why you think my method would do that. Um, you know, if I see two games and I can only have, um, and one of them is going to go away, if I can only keep one of them and the other one has to go, I don't think it's always in, uh, you know, it's just fait accompli that, oh, of these two games, I have to play the one that has more replayability baked in. To me, that's not even a consideration at all. Once you've got two or three hundred games on your shelf, and you know, enough games that you could play a different game every day for a year and never play the same game twice in a row. Once you get up to that level, replayability is... I mean, if I'm playing a game one time a year, you know what? By the time I get to it next year, I'm probably going to be excited, even if it didn't have as much replayability baked into it as another game. So, I mean, to me, replayability, by and large, does not come into it. It comes into it if you've got a, 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 a collection of 50 games. But the reality is, I think it's really important for it to come in. If you're going to keep yourself at 50 games, and that's it for the rest of your life... Um, to me, it doesn't make sense to keep a game around. Because if I'm only going to have 50 games for the rest of my life, I'm going to play all those hundreds of times. And anytime I make a choice and choose a game that doesn't hold up for hundreds of plays, I've made a mistake. So I think the thing you pointed out, which works the way it works in your situation with a small collection, is important. I, I, I think it's a much more important consideration. Anyway, all right, continue on. In your case, you almost exclusively play games with Jen. You probably don't have to take a variety of groups into account when ranking your games. Uh, but if I would rank every game with the idea that it's the only game I'll ever play... See, that's... Maybe I misspoke. It's, it's not the only game you'll ever play. What I meant more was, um, I won't get to play this game ever again. 
The only way I ever get to play this game for the rest of my life is if I keep it. Otherwise, it disappears from the face. It is literally erased from existence. And to me, that is a valuable thought process. It doesn't mean I can't play the game, though. I mean, if it still exists out there, if I have a friend who has that game, yeah, I'm going to get rid of it. Instantly, it's not even a second, uh, you know, not even a second's decision because I have access to it. Um, all right, I'm sorry. I, I, let's see. Uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. But um, all right, in case you're probably don't have again, that's only a game I ever play. Yeah, but again, it's not the assumption that it's the only game I'll ever play for the rest of my life. It's my only chance to play that game. That you know, if I have to pick between Agricola and Hanabi, that's a tough choice. Um, there's such radically different games. Everything about them is different. But uh, to me, it's an interesting thought exercise, right? What will I regret more if I don't get to play that game? If I could never play Hanabi for the rest of my life, or I could never play Agricola for the rest of my life, well, it's going to be one of them. That was the thought exercise. Maybe I misspoke and said it was the only game I'd ever get to play. Because no, that's, that, that's not a particularly meaningful metric to me. Anyway, questions. Any suggestions for how to factor all this in? For example, uh, how do you rate Dixit? I know this is maybe the only game you keep around for larger gaming groups. Actually, there's a couple more. Like, we, uh, we have just one and a couple other games like that. But it, it's rare. Um, but if you have to compare that to any other game uh, from the viewpoint of only keeping one game, then presumably Dixit will always lose as you cannot play... No, no. Because, again, if I have to rank Dixit against... Steam Donkey. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, yes, I know Dixit is something I could only play once in a blue moon, whereas I could play Steam Donkey Seven Ways to Sunday with Jen. I'm, I don't care about how many times I get to play the game. Because once I've got 365 games and I can play a different game every day of the year, replayability is a meaningless metric to me. One time a year, no, any game in the universe is replayable if you're playing it one day a year. So uh, Dixit will outlast many, many games because I would not want to deny myself the experience of Dixit as much as I'd be willing to deny myself the experience of something else. So yeah. Uh, hopefully that makes more sense than whatever it is I apparently really goofed up earlier. Okay, uh, finally, P.S. Great fan and Patreon backer. Thank you very much, Olaf. Uh, hope to see you running for a long time. Well, yep. Okay, and folks, that's it. We have to now move into, we have one more game question with Jen. So hang on, we'll be right back. Okay, everybody, we are back, and I'm not alone. Jen is here. Notice the little tiny picture right there in the corner, because she's actually right there <laughs> on the other side of the RV. And, honey, we've got one gaming question for you. And then, folks, we'll get into the personal Q&A stuff. Okay. It is from Taylor, who says, Lately, I've been dealing with board game fatigue, whether playing, learning, or attending game nights. Uh, just haven't had the energy. This comes after years of being 100% into the board game lifestyle. My question is, do you ever get burned out from the constant learning and playing of games? How do you keep up that motivation, that energy to maintain the board game lifestyle? And that was not actually directly for you, but I figured you probably have something to weigh in on this as well. Oh. So uh, that is from Taylor Honeypie. How do you keep from getting burned out? Well, I think you helped me not be burned out because you're so good at screening games. Mm -hmm. And um, a few years ago, when we were living in Malta, we were playing way too many games, and a lot of them were too prototypey for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely was getting burned out. But you've done such a great job in the last, well, since then, of, of screening games and really, I think, 
probably I'm very happy playing 90, 95% of the games that we play. Right. So I think that helps a lot to make sure that the okay. ratio of fun to... Taylor, first thing Jen says, don't play crappy games. All right. What else you got? <laughs> Assu- well, I mean, you're going to give me the executive summarizing. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there you go. Uh, but I, I think, I mean, I'm assuming Taylor is playing good games. And Taylor is just getting tired in general of playing games because it's yeah. just... How many times can you convert a cube into a different colored cube to get three points? Yeah. What keeps you from getting fr- fr- fatigued? Because we don't really branch out. We don't do party games. We are really kind of focused on just one thing. What keeps you from getting sick and tired of the same old, same old over and over again? Well, I think actually I have had some experience with feeling like, oh, I don't really want to play another Mediterranean well, trader game. So. so I don't think we've been playing them. Mm-hmm. I think we've been branching out into different ones, still Euro games. I think we pretty much... Well, yeah, okay, so, all right, so if there's a setting, change the setting. But, I mean, still, at the end of the day, we play, probably 90% of all the games we play are bean-counting games. <laughs> in various uh, and sundry forms, in various and sundry settings. They're all about collecting, harvesting beans to convert them into points via some Byzantine operations. Okay. That is what we play over and over and over again. And I'm not tired of it, but I am. I mean, I, the reason I put this over here, when Taylor asked me, really, and I'll answer the question too, Taylor, don't worry, but I was really curious to see what keeps you from getting tired of counting beans in the form of wooden cubes that convert on a victory point track. <laughs> um, gosh, I, I thought I was answering the question, but apparently I'm not. Well, I Is mean, you said you're... you said play good games, fine. Yeah. You said play themes that you like. That's cool. But even with that, I mean, that's all it takes for you. As long as it's not a bad game and it's uh, a th- I mean, you you would get sick of setting, but you don't get sick of the gameplay. That's really kind of what I'm asking. Cuz I'm reading between the lines here. I'm assuming Taylor's getting tired of the gameplay itself. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, oh, well, you need to play more science fiction games. Or you need to play less science fiction games or whatever, right? It's just like, no. Board games, sitting down for 90 minutes and moving a bunch of pieces around and then tallying up a score at the end and then rinse, wash, repeat. Hmm. You know, I mean, the, the experience itself, not, you know, the subtext of, you know, one setting or over another or, you know, oh, four stars versus five star games. Well, I guess I would ask him, what did he used to enjoy about it? Did he used to enjoy interacting with new people mm-hmm. at game nights that he didn't know? And so it was a social aspect of of getting to know new people and making new friends, and maybe he hasn't branched out into any new groups lately? He or she only says they uh, don't have the energy. After 100% being in the board game question lifestyle, they don't have the energy. Mm. And you're somebody who suffers from flagging energy all the time, it feels like to me, because you're always burning the candle at both ends and in the middle, and in every single space along the candle as well. (laughs) That candle doesn't stand a chance. Um, and so how do you keep your energy enthusiasm up for what is really, if, if you pull back and look at it from a hundred miles away, it's a pretty repetitive thing that we do for fun. Hmm. Well, I like to spend time with you Uh huh. and I like keeping my brain sharp. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, the variety, especially of what we, cause we don't play a lot of games a lot. I mean, we don't play the same game many, many, many times. So maybe that's it, too. Maybe he's playing the same games over and over and over and over again. He needs fresh games, new games. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of games out there that are are fresh and exciting, different types of games that um, are, I mean, so, like, 
we and we and then we held hands a couple of years ago was I think a new kind of game that came out. Mm-hmm. So and I know there's been a couple of other ones since then too that I've really felt oh that's really different like that one game where you were putting your things this way and I was putting my things that way and I think they were numbered and we had to try and intersect with each other and then if do you know which one I'm talking about? No. Um, but I, I was it a cooperative game? No. You were putting your pieces in one dimension. Yes. And I was putting my, my pieces in another dimension. And they were like different little single pieces at a time. And then at some point you could actually convert my pieces. I kind of feel like you're talking direction. about that tethered, tethered astronauts floating in space yeah, game. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. 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 There weren't pieces. They were cards. Okay. That's what threw me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, to me, that's a totally different new kind of game. Uh huh. So. To play something like that certainly refreshes kind of all those juices that have, uh, that's interesting. And I guess maybe, I know you like playing new games all the time anyway. I, I kind of just like living in perpetual hope that the next game is going to be the really best, coolest thing I've ever tried. Well, see, this is the interesting thing. I mean, for me, that was probably going to be my number one is, is novelty. Is that, you know, I am a cult of the new guy and I do like, um, you know, trying new things. And I do wonder if our capacity to continue to play as much as we do, you know, a bunch of times a week, 52 weeks a year, would maintain as much if, no, we are just playing the same six or seven games over and over again. Yeah. I think we had to play Ticket to Ride. (laughs) Well, once upon a time, many, many years ago, you bemoaned the fact that, ah, because of Runs Through, I never get to go back and play it. We never play Agricola anymore, or yeah. what have you. I mean, the last game we played even remotely regularly was Gloomhaven, back when we were still in Malta. And so you'd always held to, man, I wish we had more time to play. But now, in between the lines, you're saying, well, boy, it's really great that we're constantly, you know, experiencing new and different things to keep things from, you know, potentially getting a little stale. Would yeah. you say that's the case? If, if, if Rotto ended tomorrow... And we're like, okay, we're only going to play, you know, we're going to play the same game a dozen times, um, you know, and, uh, you know, this month. I mean, would we play as many games if we weren't playing new games? I Because I hate, Taylor, I hate to say that that's maybe an answer, but that's maybe an answer is the, uh, hey, uh, find a way to always be getting new games to the table that, you know, just constantly, I mean, that's, that was basically where you're going with. You were coming up with concrete examples of, well, I'm not bored because look at this thing. I've never played anything like this. And next week, we're playing two two other things that, you know, totally do something new and interesting. Yeah, I think that's certainly an element. And, Mm -hmm. um, of course, any kind of novelty will always keep things fresh. But um, I'm thinking back to when we played Charterstone or when we played Legacy Games and how much we enjoyed that whole immersion. So I don't... Staying with the game a lot, yeah. Yeah. To me, that's playing the same game over and over and over again, but the de- designers have introduced some new something in sure. every chapter. Yeah, yeah. So there's both the novelty and the, uh, I guess, the comfort of knowing your character really well. Okay. So, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I think it it might depend on who he's playing with. Do you can you imagine a circumstance under which you would get bored of playing games? Oh, we, oh okay. You just said that last bit. It depends on who you're playing with. So are you suggesting it's it's less about the games, it's less about the gameplay. It's less about the activity. It's of board gaming in general. It's all about the fact that it's just an activity you and I are sharing together. And that's what keeps you coming back. And that's what keeps you from Hmm. potentially getting burned out. I think that is certainly a very high priority in Mm -hmm. my answer, yes. Okay. All right. 
Okay, well, cool. There's Jen with some thoughts. Uh, for me, to answer your direct question, Taylor, how do I stop from getting burned out? I can't. I'm, I, as somebody who designed games for two decades professionally, really enjoy discovering new twists on existing mechanisms, new combinations of mechanisms that were, were, you know, end up creating new circumstances. And I would worry a bit about burning out if I was limited to 100 games or something like, or I was a normal gamer. Um, and it's, I don't know if that would, I mean, there was a time before Rod Orange Through started many, many, many years ago where we did play Agricola over and over and over again. And we played... Tobago over and over and over again. And we played Dominion over and over and over again. And we, you know, we had like 20 games and we just played them a lot. And I don't know. I mean, we didn't stay in that mode long enough to see if we would ever get burned out. I can imagine that potentially happening. I'm sorry it's happening to you. I, I totally get it. Um, you know, Jen started to say, well, you know, who is it you're playing with? What are you playing? I mean, I think you really have to kind of analyze. But, and you know what? Ultimately, at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with taking a break. You know, absence makes yeah. the heart grow fonder at the end of the day. So take a break. Um, you know, uh, don't play a game for two months. I bet you anything, you'll be really excited. Whatever game it is, you'll be really excited to play it. And that, you know, that's probably the biggest trick you can do. I can't do that because I'd go out of business, but it might be something that would help you. Anyway, folks, that's it. Gaming is done. And now, hang on. Uh, we'll be right back with the personal Q&A. Unless, of course, folks, you're watching this on YouTube as the regular Q&A. Did you know, if you just watched the uh, Q&A episodes I put out, there's like a whole different show where Jen and I talk about non-game-related stuff. You can find that at podcast.rado.com if you want to listen to it. Or if you're over at Patreon.com, you can watch it. But... Um, regardless, let's now uh, move on, and we'll be right back. Okay, everybody, personal Q&A time, starting with Andrus, who says, In the last episode, you were fairly concerned about your safety while traveling and parking in remote areas. I've not traveled and spent nights in remote areas, but I don't think I'd be concerned about my life doing that in my country of Latvia. Are your fears justified? When I thought more about this, I remember that in the 90s and early aughts, there were concerns about traveling through Poland. People bought cars in Germany and drove back home. There, there were stories of how organized crimes would stop car while pretending to be police and uh, took them. Uh, there were guidelines to not stop at uh, any costs outside of populated areas. Did you fear for your life in the UK or Malta? All right. No. No. And we don't. I don't think we really fear for our lives here. I think... What you're referring to, Andrews, was one particular instance. The first time we were in this RV, oh, yeah. parking in the middle of nowhere. Yep. And that was genuinely frightening. Uh, or, you know, we were at unease, right? At the very least, we were uneasy. Yeah. And it was unjustified, and it was unwarranted. And uh, and it turns out, yeah, everything was totally fine. <clears throat> and since then, we've got, I mean, it's what we're doing right now. We're just out in Death Valley, you know, you know, the nearest town, miles and miles and miles away. Nobody else around. Actually, there's another RV. Wasn't there another RV? I don't see him now. Maybe they've left. Oh. Uh, um, no, he's over there. Oh, okay. I just can't see him from where I'm sitting. Yep. So, yeah, there's just one other RV just kind of out here in the middle of nowhere. And we're totally fine. We're totally comfortable with it. And uh, it was just that one moment where we it was just it was something new and unfamiliar that made us uh, made us nervous about it. I don't I mean it'll be interesting if we end up 
doing something new and different when we cross into Mexico. Will we feel nervous about it there? I don't think so, but that's in part because we've done so much research and watched so many videos about traveling via an RV through uh, Baja and what to know, what to look for and all that. I think we'll probably be fairly comfortable there, too. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the reality is media makes its money by scaring its audience into watching. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. That is the whole nature of news media. Because they are a for-profit enterprise trying to make as much money as possible by, you know, getting more sponsorships from Gillette razor blades or whatever. They need to ensure people feel that it is necessary to tune in. And the easiest way to do that is to scare people. Uh, politicians do it, media do it, um, and it's an unfortunate distortion of reality that makes us think that we live in a lawless, dangerous land where you know we're constantly in danger all the time. Where is if you look at the statistics, everything's fine, and probably those stories you're talking about in the uh, '90s, uh, there were probably just a handful of organized crime, you know, car thefts, but they were blown all out of proportion. I don't know if that's true or not. I wasn't in Poland in the '90s, but I do want to bet that's probably the case because that's just true for media across the board. I don't know, Honey Pie, are you nervous about going off road and uh, being far away from the things of man and all of that? You mean in Baja or in general? Just in however you want to answer Andrew's question. Um. I think it is nice to be around people a little bit. Like mm -hmm. when we parked here, I said, oh, it's kind of nice to have neighbors. Okay. Um, we're not right next to them or anything, but they're within sight and we're, we're within sight of them. And I don't know. It's, it is, there's something comforting about having a neighbor. Mm -hmm. um, so I assume that everywhere we will go in Baja, we will have neighbors. I would imagine so. We are going to Baja in the winter. Uh, it is going to be the busiest time of the year when the majority of people in RVs travel south trying to avoid, you know, a cold, rainy, gloomy winter. So probably everywhere we go, there will be, you know, elbow. I mean, if anything, I, th I think Jen's, you know, in a few months going to be saying, oh, my God, I can't wait to get away from all these people. It was completely at odds with, oh, you know, it's kind of nice to have some neighbors. I think she'll be singing a different tune pretty soon, but yeah, that, we will see. That could very well be. Yeah. And when, after we've had a few camping, you know, days or places that we've been and we were a little bit more comfortable i'm sure i'll wish that yeah let's try and find somewhere a little more secluded mm -hmm. we certainly don't I, so far we haven't enjoyed being you know five feet away from a neighbor like at an rv park yeah. which we've been at a couple of times um that's just not my idea of <clears throat> fun so well i'm sure we'll find a good balance and if we're not happy somewhere we just have the lovely option to pick up and move uh, also, did we ever fear for our lives at any point in the UK or Malta? Malta has a ridiculously <laughs> low crime rate. One of the lowest crime rates in the world. I'm going to say the only time we feared for our lives was when we were driving. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> the, they are crazy drivers there. Yep. There's a, it's, uh, that's where the lawlessness is, on the road in Malta. Um, yep. Yeah, every... As far as, no. But just... in England, I don't know. Um, I mean, I don't know. I guess maybe we'd find ourselves occasionally in more crime-ridden areas of London, but I don't think so as a general rule. Honestly, I just in general, living in America, I have a low-level, constant hum of fear everywhere I go, every single person I interact with, because every single person I see every day of my life that I don't know, 
could literally have a gun on them. And that's absurd that that is the world that we Americans live in. That is the world we choose for ourselves. We put ourselves in so much danger because of that. And, you know, we never really, I mean, you know, I, I was never worried that someone could pull a gun on me in England or Malta or pretty much anywhere else in the world we've ever been. But here, you know, living in southern, southwestern Washington, which is a very conservative area, and, you know, I see trucks driving around with guns hanging in the rear window. And, um, yeah, I, I, it is something that I am always a little bit nervous about. That, you know what, if I piss somebody off, they might have a gun. And they might pull out shoot. Now, the, in part, that is a fear that is born of a uh, media ecosystem trying to drum up fears. But it is also based on the truth. There, <clears throat> you know... Gosh, the highest cause of, of, uh, of deaths of, of teens in America is gun-related. Or, you know, and we have the highest per capita homicide rate anywhere in the world. You know, even in, you know, like law, I mean, because there are just so many guns. Or one of the highest. I mean, maybe there's some uh, country I can't think of that might have a higher one because they're literally in the middle of civil war or something like that. Um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I feel more fear walking the streets of any American city than I do pretty much anywhere else I've ever been in the world because of our country's stupid, stupid, pathological obsession with gun ownership. Um, which, of course, is driven by money. Because the only reason everybody's so up in arms about it is because gun manufacturers and gun uh, lobbyist organizations can make money by convincing all of them out there that, you know what, everybody else has a gun, so you better have a gun too. Because that's the American way. And it's absurd. And, um, you know, that and healthcare are the two reasons we will eventually leave this country again. There's no way we're staying. Uh, because uh, these are two intractable problems that seems like could never truly be fixed in America, sadly. You have anything more to say about uh, fear and fear of life, honey pie? Nope. Okay, then. We will move on to Kat, who says... Your position summarized, I believe, is that AI automation technology will revolutionize our lives and that we'll hit a post-scarcity Star Trek world and live in relative peace. I agree and disagree. I agree that the possibility is there, but I disagree because uh, I believe we'll have to fail to get there. I don't disagree, Kat. Uh, the reality is, um, you know, hey, when we talk about it being a Star Trek future, let's not forget, Star Trek future got to their future after World War III. You know, it was only after we pulled ourselves back from the brink in the imagined Star Trek future that we could finally get our act together and realize, you know, we don't have to do this. We don't have to squabble over dirt anymore. There's enough dirt for everyone, it turns out. We have infinite dirt generating machines. So why do we keep fighting for no reason over dirt? It's so dumb. Um, you know, and it, in, the, in Star Trek fiction, it took a world war to do it at nuclear Armageddon. Uh, is it going to be that way for us? Probably not. What it is going to be is effectively a repeat of the French Revolution. Um, maybe not as bloody as that, but you know, the super wealthy have to realize they can only keep tipping the balance in their favor and gobbling up everything at everyone else's expense for so long until their heads are on the chopping block. It's happened before in history. It can happen again, especially in a country where all the proletariat carry guns. So, you know, sooner or later, super wealthy, rich mega corporations have to realize you have enough money. You don't have to obsessively grab more and more. Anyway, sorry, I've probably gotten way off track. Maybe we'll see if you agree, Kat. Let's continue. Um, going on past history, 
uh, these things will never pan out like how um, I'm imagining. And the problem is always the same, the owner class. Hey, Kat, I think we probably agree. Um, we've made some incredible leaps in advancement over a very short period of time. Think of automobile, the factory, fuel, medicine, the list goes on. Yet, despite all these advancements and the fact that many of us have never uh, had it so good, the rich get richer and the poor get poor. People are dying because we can't afford health care. People live in the streets and are still fighting over crumbs. Trickle-down theory has failed. Any advancement in technology will go the same way. Uh, it will be stuck in the hands of millionaires in the past, now billionaires and soon to be trillionaires. Why will Bezos and Musk have the share of their technology with us? Why should they? Um, should they? Cat, we're just agreeing here. We're, we're totally agreeing. Should the government seize it? Why would they, when they are owned by the same people, look at the vaccines? Why did we pump billions into private companies when we could have made it ourselves and owned by American people? How can a dictatorship under umpteen sanctions, Cuba, make their own vaccine, but we can't? For me, to come to your side, I believe the burden is on you to tell us why history will stop repeating itself and advancements will find its way into the hand of normal individuals. I want to believe you're right, but I have to go on previous evidence that the rich will gatekeep any advancements under the law um, uh, supported by government. Um, you just made your argument against yourself. You just listed a handful of things. Compare the quality of your life to the quality of your life if you were a subsistence farmer in living in medieval Europe. And you know what? There were the super rich. They were hoarding everything in medieval Europe and Asia and everywhere else. It is a tale as old as time that the richer you get, the more you want to desperately hold on to those riches. It's a stupid quirk of our stupid lizard brains that the more you have, the more you fear losing it and the more you have to fight for even more. It's, it's, there, there can never be enough. And that's not something that has just happened in our generation or in our lifetime or in this century or the previous century. It goes all the way back to the first time we realized, oh, I can give you this pretty seashell in exchange for you helping me thatch my roof or whatever, you know, when barter came about and, uh, and capitalism was born. It's, uh, and, but the thing is, it's always been with us and we have always in the long term overcome this. Um, and the ev I'm sitting in the evidence right now talking to something that when I was a kid would have seen like the craziest, most far off science fiction thing. And I bought this camera and this computer and this microphone I'm talking to you for pennies. Um, whereas the, everything I have that allows me to do what I'm doing right now would have, um, you know, required me to spend the equivalent of NASA space moon missions if I were able to do it back in the 50s and 60s. And all this happened in spite of the fact that the rich always want to profit and hold everything for themselves. So what has always turned it around? Well, two things. Um, bloody conflict and bloodless voting. There's only one thing that needs to happen. We have to vote. And we have to vote in our best interest instead of voting in um, corporations' best interest. The problem is corporations have all the money. And so they have tricked a not insignificant portion of the populace into, believe, into voting against their own best interest. And they've been doing it over and over and over again. In my lifetime, it's, you know, as you said, you mentioned trickle-down economics. That was something that was put forward in the 80s. We are still feeling the ill effects of that and still slowly 
slowly shaking off the shackles of that. Um, the problem isn't that there is a relatively small percentage of the population that can be hoodwinked into voting against their own best interest. The real problem is the people who do understand what you were just describing, they're too apathetic to vote. That's the problem. The problem, I mean, Martin Luther King, uh, I wish I could remember his quote about, you know what's the biggest thing holding back civil rights? Disaffected white people who would just rather the problem go away rather than actually doing something. Not those who actively stood against civil rights, but those who were in favor of civil rights but couldn't be bothered to vote, couldn't be bothered to lift themselves up from their own day-to-day problems and realize, I could affect change. So, the thing is, We'll find out in 2024. 2016 was probably the worst year in my lifetime for a setback in terms of actual positive progressive growth. When you had the um, ascendancy of Trump and the ascendancy of Brexit, both in the same year. Um, and both of those things driven by big money trying to, to dupe the populace into believing, vote for me and I'll give you your share trickle down. It's always trickle down. Oh, and vote for me because I'll make sure the the people who are below you on the totem pole will actually not steal anything from you. I'll make sure you keep yours at the expense of those dirty, um, you know, foreigners or, you know, immigrants or whatever it might be. It's the same old trick. It's nothing new under the sun. It's just all hyper accelerated through, you know, social media and whatnot. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, uh, uh, well, I, I, I am talking to the proof. You're living the proof. I'm living the proof. Every good thing we have in our life is because the generation that came before us made the smart choice, voted, and affected change that would help all of humanity instead of the 1%. That will continue to happen. It will. Uh, and the 1% will continue to fight against it tooth and nail because they're greedy so-and-sos. Um, and it's unfortunate that their lizard brains think that that's what they've got to do. Because the more you have, the more you fight to hold on to it. It's just so unfortunate that that is the case. But yeah, I mean, history will continue to repeat itself. And the thing is, if it turns out I'm wrong, then there's the other opportunity. There's the other option. There's the French Revolution option. Where... Um, instead of sharing the largesse, the, um, the uh, underclass will take it back. It's going to be one of those two things. We'll see. We'll, time will tell what it is. Do you have anything to add to that, Honey Pie? Uh, would you like to add a pause division because you've been reading your positive visions of the future books recently? Uh, there has been a really good book that I've just read that the future is faster than you think. Yes. And I really enjoyed that book. And basically it's that all of these converging technologies are going to change things very quickly in the next five to ten years. Yes. And yes, there are people right now who are who are billionaires, and some of them are using their billions to focus on particular problems in society. Yes. And so you think, well, they're doing things right now that governments couldn't do or corporations couldn't do. It's, it's the, because of the system we're in, yes. Because of the system. But yet their personal passion and their personal conviction is allowing great leaps forward. So, yes, there are some problems with billionaires, but some of them are using their billions productively. There are, in the current world we're in, they're a necessary evil. Capitalism is a necessary evil. Back to what you originally pointed out, the fact that automation and AI will continue as Jen just pointed out, I mean, to 
radically transform the world in ways that will make it unrecognizable. The next generation, I mean, it's, I mean, it's happened in our generation. Think back, I mean, I don't know how old you are, Kat, but I mean, growing up in the 70s, I mean, we live in a Star Trek world right now. Um, and the flying with, cars are coming soon. And the flying cars are they're here. <laughs> they just did their first one in New York. Uh, it's, it's amazing. So it's coming. It's here. That's another thing to bear in mind, too, that maybe is different about this go-around. It will get to the point where automation and AI reduce the cost of goods of everything to effectively zero. Um, that will happen. At some point, hoarding all the money in the universe doesn't really matter if everybody can have everything they want provided to them without any cost whatsoever. I mean, that is the post-scarcity society that technological breakthroughs will eventually bring about. Eventually. It is very possible that in my lifetime, and if not in my lifetime, then the next generations, that we will have cracked fusion. And at the same time, we will have cracked... Um, what do I keep always talking about? Cultured meat, lab-grown meat. Yeah. Those two things, the fact that we will have endless energy to create endless food without any further impact on the world, enough that there's no way, that, I mean, starvation will truly go away. When these two things finally break through and, you know, hit mass, um, you know, point of no return, uh, you tipping know, point. tipping point viability... Everything changes. No one will ever go hungry again. There will simply be no reason to because there is effectively, we will have cracked the code, hacked the universe, and created infinite food. Turning sunlight into infinite food for everyone, or the equivalent of sunlight, through fusion. What's that going to do to the age-old disparity we've had between the uh, the haves and the have-nots when everybody has on some basic level? I don't know. It's impossible to predict, uh, you know. So it is a bit hard to say. But I'm talking about just the same old rhythms we've always had. Rhythms are going to change, though. Um, we are in a rhythm nation. Okay. Cat <laughs> then continues. I never got around to it at the time, but I wanted to comment on your passionate rant about how badly CNN treated Andrew Yang. Uh, the way they ignored him at times, uh, straight up deliberately misrepresented him, and others was very wrong. However, didn't this happen because they do this already? It seemed to me uh, they have this habit of doing uh, doing it, and the way to fight this is to fight this every time it comes up. The problem is, of course, uh, they uh, would we, uh, you would have to defend Trump. I'm no fan of Trump, but if someone lies about him, I have no problem with them pointing out that saying he's wrong. It's not just Trump, of course. It can be uh, li uh, literally any of the candidates from any parties, that, um, and even independents. Anyone who uh, isn't their chosen candidate seems to get bad treatment. If I don't point this out at all times, then I don't feel like I have the right to point it out only when my favorite candidate is treated this way. Do you agree? And if not, why not? I'm not saying um, you don't feel angry when lies are told about others, but I never see you talking about it when it was, uh, uh, except when it's your favorite candidate, Yang. If we all sit in bubbles and only speak about it uh, when our pig is attacked, we'll never be able to come together and solve the issue. Okay. Um, Kat? I'm going to need um, some receipts, as the kids like to say. Um, tell me what blatant lies CNN and MSNBC and The Guardian and the BBC and NPR tell about Trump. It's very, very easy to fall into the trap of saying, oh, because really super-duper hardcore, um, um, you know, extreme uh, folks will 
tell, will spread lies or mistruths or whatever you want to call them about anybody under the sun or misrepresent to the point of effectively telling lies on Twitter, on YouTube, doesn't matter at the end. It, or what I, it does matter. Of course, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem that um, the majority of uh, what's what's what came after Gen Z. I think I saw this. You know, whatever comes after Gen Z, Alpha, uh, Alpha, or maybe it was Gen Z, gets their news from TikTok. That's a huge problem because there is no vetted news source on TikTok. It is just people speaking with authority and putting up graphics that look as good as what NBC or ABC or CNN or anybody was able to put together. But regardless. Um, when you say, you, you got to tell me, you know, like I often say to um, Daniel, write it again, send me some links showing me blatant lies told by centrist and left-leaning news organizations. Um, or just centrist. You know, um, I don't know, Mother Jones, I, I don't know how, if, if they stretch the truth. Uh, but Go to fact checkers. Go to that new one, um, that new website, Ground. You know, the, where, which its whole point is that um, you know it gives biases. It points out, hey, if you, if you lean this way, here's all the stories you don't hear about. It's an amazing service. I should really try it out. And heck, maybe have it sponsor the show. I don't know. It seems like every other YouTuber is. But I mean, you don't have to pay for it. There are plenty of uh, fact checking websites that will, um, you know, you know, break down. Uh, you know, the uh, the biases and the problems of any news outlet you want. You're saying that Trump is being misrepresented by MSNBC, CNN, Guardian. I don't think so. And you're going to have to show me examples of that. Now, on the flip side, I will show you all day long examples of Fox News and um, OAN and those types of outlets blatantly lying. Not misrepresenting things. Not, you know... You know, just only showing some of the numbers, but not the whole picture. Just blatantly out and out lying to their audience over and over and over and over. It goes back to Rush Limbaugh. Although, I mean, heck, it, father, it goes back to Father Coughlin back in the Depression era. You know, I mean, it's, it's nothing new um, that they're not. I mean, yes, the left stretches the truth. The left cherry picks data. I won't deny that. But it doesn't blatantly lie. The right drums up fear by blatantly lying seven ways till Sunday. And it's a fundamentally huge difference. Um, yeah, so I, I, give me examples. Because I can certainly give you examples where, yeah, very clearly, they misnamed Yang. They, by their own metrics, they left Yang off list. That was really uh, frustrating and unfortunate. Show me when that ever happened to Trump. You won't find it because all here's I'll tell you why that happened to Yang, by the way. In 2016, the news networks thought Trump was a joke. There was the, um, you know, there was no danger of him ever. Trump thought it. Trump didn't think he was going to win. Uh, Clinton, Hillary didn't. Nobody thought Trump was going to win. Nobody. Well, except for a few outliers. Michael Moore thought um, you know, Trump was going to win. Uh, you know, and a few others here and there. But by and large, everybody assumed it was fine. So... Um, to get the most clicks on their stories they could. They covered Trump. They said anything he said, they would cover it. And they were always incredibly favorable towards Trump. I mean, it wasn't until after Trump had been in office and had been 
you know, destroying all the norms, not in a good way, right-leaning audience, but in a very, very bad, destructive, sets all of his society back by decades kind of way, um, you know, on the international stage and all that. I mean, they were so hesitant to ever say, I mean, to this day, you won't see um, anybody saying Trump tells lies. You just say, oh, it's another untruth, because they soft-pedal the message. And meanwhile, they went so hard on Hillary's emails, so needlessly hard when it was such an infinitely not story. There was never anything there, no matter how hard the Republicans tried. They could not find a smoking gun. And yet the media kept trying to create a false equivalency of, you know what? Trump says he likes to commit sexual assault because he's a celebrity. That's literally, I have him on tape saying that. And, oh, well, we have to have an equal argument. Well, you know what? There's maybe some, you know, some, some, we don't know. We haven't read Hillary's emails. Maybe there's something bad in it. And the, somehow the two things are just as bad as each other. When that's absurd. That's absurd. You have one candidate admitting to sexual assault on camera. And you have somebody else saying, well, look, here's all my emails. Here they all are. Go. Yes, some of them got deleted. Sorry. Um, you know, will they ever know what's on them? No, I guess not. Did you really want to hear more about Hillary planning weddings for her daughter? Oh, I'm sorry you didn't get to see those. But say la vie, they're gone. There's not the same equivalency there. Uh, Trump got nothing but a free ride. And he won. And that caused the media, or at least the centrist and left-leaning media, to really take a step back and say, whoa, we played a big part in this. We were not responsible by creating those false equivalencies so we could get more clicks and generate as much drama and tension to get as much viewership as possible. And so, when 2020 came around, they said, oh, this Yang guy, wow, he really fits the Trump bill. He's uh, not a politician. He's an independent businessman. He's talking about really upending the system in radically different ways, coming, approaching everything from a radically different way. You know what? Let's bury him. Let's just, let's not make this mistake again. Let's not let him ascend because he's probably just as bad. We don't want to take this, we do not want to be responsible for something like that to happen again. And in my opinion, anyway, that's why Yang got the short end of the straw because he was, uh, you know, on the surface level, he really bared a lot of, of the same hallmarks. Um, anyway, though, shoot, 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 shoot. I thought. With this episode, I was going to put all the politics at the end. I totally missed this one. I should have put it at the end. Uh, I, I, I know people, I know probably well over half, maybe even two-thirds of the audience doesn't want to hear about politics at all. And I apologize for that because there's a small handful of folks who love writing in with politics questions. This month, I was going to start putting them at the end. Several questions from Daniel were going to go at the end. This one should have gone at the end. I apologize for everybody who didn't want to hear me rant about politics one more time. Honey Pie, do you have anything you would like to say on this topic before I move on? No, I think I'll let it go. Okay. Then we'll just move on to number five. I know you had a lot of questions. Um, I'm sorry I didn't categorize this correctly. Anyway, number five, random thought. Uh, Whenever you say Gen Con, all I can think about is Gen Con, which would be a wonderful convention about glass dogs and knitting. (laughs) And tea. And tea. Oh, you forgot the tea. Um, uh, yes. Yep, yep. That would be nice. But that's not a real question there, so let's move on. Uh, you mentioned the idea of Pokemon being awful, and I have to agree. Catching wild animals and forcing them to fight each other is not great. Funnily enough, in one of the Pokemon games I played, there was an extremist group who were the bad guys, and uh, they said that what Pokemon trainers did was bad, and they wanted to stop them, and it became an issue of freedom, and the Pokemon trainers had the freedom to capture Pokemon, and the extremist group were as bad as they wanted to 
force them to stop. It always makes me laugh how people create straw men in a desperate attempt to win some argument. What would you say is the biggest straw man argument ever built that affects our discourse today? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, basically, anything. Uh, immigrate immigrants are bad. Immigrants are bad. That's that's really high up there. When in fact. Immigrants are a net good for society. They're good for the immigrants. They're good for the um, immigrant, the immigrates, the the, the immigrantees, the, the immigrants themselves, and the country that is bringing them in. Um, our country rose to prominence because of our open border approach to immigration, um, and we are hurting ourselves, just like other countries, just like Japan is literally slowly dying because they so steadfastly refuse to accept immigration. It's killing them as a country. It's killing us too, but we we have a lot more natural resources, so it's killing us a lot less slowly. Um, probably, yes, one of the greatest strawman, boogeyman arguments ever made is those dirty foreigners over there. Vote us into power and we'll keep them out and save you because yeah, your your parents and your grandparents were dirty foreigners too at once upon a time, but you're not now. Now you're in the in-group and you're okay. It's those other dirty foreigners. We got to keep them out. That's probably my biggest one. I agree with that. Okay. Whereas I, the best parts in our history have been when people have gotten together and, and exactly. put their minds together and worked together. Yeah, people from different points of view, people from different origins, people from different lands. Um, you know, it's no surprise that when you um, survey the number of patent holders, it's an incredibly high percentage that are actual immigrants because they've got the drive to come in here and change the world given the opportunity to. So I'm going to say immigration, uh, vilification of immigration, probably the greatest one. And, you know, it's nothing new. It's been going on ever since the first time we drew a meaningless, arbitrary line on a map. Uh, because at the end of the day, like I said earlier, we just can't stop fighting over who has this patch of dirt and who has that patch of dirt. When, really, the world we live in today, there is more than enough dirt for everybody. And we just have a very it's a hard habit to break. Okay, number nine. Have you considered having travel vlogs to your paid membership viewers? I think it'd be fun to see your adventures, the scenery, the food, etc. Uh, and plus some board game stuff. I watch an American couple who travels around Asia in their van with their dogs, and it's fun to see. Um, I figured you might have something to say about that. We have talked about that. Yeah. Not about it as, you know, something for Patreon backers or YouTube members and stuff like that. But actually, yeah. I mean, starting a second channel or just bringing more of that onto the main channel. Because we're going to be in this RV for the next <laughs> several months. months. Yep. Um, but, and, you know, we watch a bunch of channels, too. Uh, Wild RV is probably the one we watch the most regularly. But we watch a bunch of different RV channels. Um, and it's a lot of fun. But here's the deal. I watch them. And the whole time, <laughs> that it just looks like, oh, look, they're just out having a great adventure. And I'm sure this is true for the American couple who travel around Asia in a van with their dogs. It looks like, oh, yeah, they're just having nonstop whirlwind adventures and everything's fun and great. But here's the deal. 70% of their lives are devoted to setting up B-roll cameras so that it can capture them stepping out of their van. You ever notice how when they open the door in the van, why was there a camera outside? Because they had to go out, set up a camera, get it in focus, get their mics working, step back inside, close the door, open the door, and then jump out to go on the hike they're going to do. And they have to do that for everything in their lives. Um, you know, travel vloggers, it's a job. Uh, I know that firsthand because of what I do. And it is much harder what they do. You know, every time you, know, you see a, 
peppy music montage of, oh, look, there's a drone shot of them you know, riding bicycles, and then boom, there's them getting off the bicycles and going into the restaurant, and then boom, there's the close-up of their food, and then there's smiley faces and all of that. That's a lot of work. Yeah, they don't they don't carry cameramen around with them. No, they do not. Yeah, it's just them. And, you know, it is them doing the work. You're right. You're entirely right. Of, of like, a two cameramen, uh, you know, a boom operator, a producer, at least a team of three or four people are being done by the actual stars. And I can't stress how hard it is. And, yeah, we talked about it. Hey, should we do it? Yep. And we decide, you know, because here's the deal. If we did, and I was successful, a, a, a successful RV lifestyle travel blog channel makes, you know, you know what I do here on Rotto Runs Through is pennies, is chump change. You know, we could be making a six-figure salary easy. Like, um, you know, the, the bigger ones, they make half a million dollars a year off of sponsorships and YouTube ads. Let that sink in. It could be the case. I don't know. I don't know anything about the channel you're talking about, but they could be making, you know, a quarter of a million dollars a year. If, you know, if the, most of their videos get, you know, 20 or 30,000 views and they have sponsors every once in a while, they're making a lot of money, but they are working so incredibly hard for it. And they're working so hard to make it look like they're not working hard too. And, and it takes over your entire life. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they have days where they just go, you know what, today we're not, nothing camera. Probably, they I probably mean, they have, have to. Have a couple right? days off, but yeah, they, they have to for. Um, but yeah, so we talked about doing it, and you know, and when you start analyzing these videos from that perspective, how do they get all these shots? How much time did they have to spend editing that video together? Um, yeah, it's just we. I mean, I made the mistake. It wasn't a mistake, but of spending twenty years making video games, and doing that made me hate video games. I don't want to hate this, right? So I don't think it's going to happen. But uh, you're, we probably should, quite frankly. It would be a good move. Um, let's see. Daniel says, Jen, I remember you doing a Star Trek show top list. Um, if it was only or, or, or us, we both kind of talked about what is the best Star Trek. But he just wants to know you. What is your favorite, you know, what, what, how do you rank uh, the Star Trek shows? And... If you feel up to it, the Star Wars movies. I know you don't really care that much. I mean, do you care about any Star Wars movie? Are they all the same to you? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you... I, there was the three from my childhood. Yes. So there's those. Okay. Um, and then there were the prequels from yeah. our twenties, I suppose. Was it that? Yeah, when so we were, were when we went to recent. Hawaii and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, we did do that in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. We had to fly from Kauai to um, the Big Island, or was it Oahu? I think it was Oahu. Because you wanted to see it. I want to see Phantom Menace, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really care about Star Wars. Jen didn't even see Rise of Skywalker. She was so tuned out by that point, she just didn't care about any of them. So, no, I don't think... I mean, and she doesn't watch any of the Star Wars TV shows. She is fundamentally... Do you, do you hate Star Wars? I'm just tired of war. Mm. Constant conflict and war and... Mm -hmm. And making it fun. fighting in. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, then and let's... And also, they lost me. When Amidala... Oh, when she died of a broken heart? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, There's more to it than that, but it's a totally valid read. So, okay, I'm sorry, Daniel. Jen's got no Star Wars for you. But, what's your favorite Star Trek? Um, I've really been enjoying Lower Decks, actually, this season. Really? Yes. No, but it is. No way it's your favorite. I have not convinced you of that. I, I, I really liked it when they did the crossover with um, the cartoon characters. Right, too. but that means you really like... Um, Strange New Worlds. 
yeah. with Captain Pike. Yeah, I do like Strange New Worlds with Captain Pike. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I'm just not very analytical like this. Mm-hmm. I enjoy I enjoy them while I'm watching them, and then I don't give it a lot more thought. Okay. I'm sorry, Daniel. She cannot answer your question. And I've probably answered it 50 billion times. Okay, so Darren says, question one. Last podcast, you mentioned not having a mind's eye. I talked about this with a friend once, and we used the analogy that I see things in standard definition black and white line drawings, and she sees them full color pictures in 4K. As a result, I can change the picture quickly while it takes her a while to deconstruct a picture before she can build a new one. We also uh, have inner monologue, which apparently not everyone has. I don't understand that. How do people function without thinking? Somehow they do. So my question is, how do you and Jen think? Do you see pictures? In what detail? Do you have inner monologues? Do you remember more in words or pictures? That is a huge question. All right. Pretty simple, though. I don't know. I'd have to stop and think about it. Well, when you think about things, (laughs) do you visualize them? I guess I run like a little movie in my head. That would be a visual medium, movies. Okay. Okay. So you have, see, I don't. If I think about Scuttle, our dog who we lost many, many years ago, I, you think of her. Yeah. You, you see her. I see her. I don't. What do you I do? think of? I think of her as a set of attributes, small black dog, fuzzy, lovable. You don't remember pulling her around on the wood floor? I remember she... doing the action, but... But that's not what your mind thinks of, and you don't see that. No. I remember the activity, but I, I guess kind of like I remember the activity the same way a blind person remember doing the same activity. I mean, I, I, mean, I, don't, no, I, don't, I don't remember the friction. I mean, I can... So I, I know when, when I did that, you know, it was a thing. Yeah. When she was very young, she would just hold on. I would pull her all over the carpetless Yeah, right. the wooden floor, yeah. But I don't see that. I just know it. I know all the details. I remember how, you know, she laid all flat out. And, oh, yeah. And you would joke that she was a dust mop and stuff like that. But yep. If I, I suppose if I really think about it, I can try to visualize it. But I don't think that way. I don't visualize things. Now, I mean, I, I have little movies in my mind of like throwing the ball for Dobby up at the, that church in Guilford, mm-hmm. you know, throwing the ball for her down that big long stretch. And yeah. Yeah. And I can remember things about Scuttle, like, you know, pulling her along and yeah, I remember the things I, yeah, yeah, but you don't, you're not visualizing them. No. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, okay. And by the same token, if you're trying to make a decision, make one right now. Okay. We're going to have pie. Right. When I we're bet done. you have to do it internally. Oh. Um, which I mean, do, I mean, what what Darren is pointing out is it. There's been a lot of articles recently about how you know there are some people who literally don't hear a voice in their head when they think about things. That there's just no concept of that. That they just their brains are so different because most people have a voice. You know, if they're thinking about you know, they're like, well, okay, if I could do this or I could do that or I could do the other thing. So, do you when you're thinking about things? Is there like an internal monologue in your brain? And this is terrible. Yeah, this is terrible. Because now Jen's having to stop and quietly yeah. think. Why don't you so pause, I'm gonna for, pause a second. for a second? And Jen's going to think for a little bit. <laughs> listing things. Okay, it took Jen a little bit, but she just said, "Yes, I am talking to myself. I am listing things, like as if there was 
a one a one person conversation in your head, right? Yep. Presumably, that's what most people do, but it has you know it has come up that some people don't, hmm. and it's I've read some articles and I don't understand. I mean, because yeah, I do too. I I think I'm fairly verbal. Um, well, it's like or internal monologue. Yeah, when you see people in TV shows or movies, and they they're like talking to the camera and they're saying, you yeah. know, the thing that they would always say yeah, yeah, yeah. after they've had a chance to think about yeah. a good comeback. Or they're talking about a memory ghost, talking to a memory ghost. You know, there, there clearly isn't a ghost there. That's just a representation of the thought process they're going through. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what was the question? So, um, do we have inner monologues, and do we think more in words or pictures? And you think very visually. I can't, it's not that I can't. It's just that it doesn't, it doesn't come naturally. I, it's it's kind of like something I have to work at. Um, and I, just, I guess I just kind of short-circuit it. I don't need that. And if I really think about it... But it's weird. It's actually it's just used, you have a standard definition of black and white. I kind of feel... You know, like, it's interesting, I have seen videos of AI-sculpted visualizations of people's thought processes, you know, monitoring, you know, CAT scans and seeing, mm-hmm. and it's like outlines of things, and, you know, it kind of comes into focus, and you see that in sci-fi movies, too. I kind of think getting far beyond that is tough for me. I can, but I just don't, because I have all the information without the visual component. But yeah, I think when I'm thinking about stuff too, I'm definitely talking to myself. Um, and so is Jen. So anything more to say to that, anybody? No. If not, then we have answered Darren's question number one, but then he has Ooh. a question number two. Okay. Have I seen Across the Spider-Verse yet thoughts? Um, right. Uh, oh, uh, Schnee on YouTube has some really good analysis of it for after you've seen it. Uh, so much uh, good stuff in that movie. Uh, that's the second one. Yes, yes, I saw it. And I liked it. Honestly, I, I'm, it's nothing against the movie. I, I, I love the, the visual energy of them and, you know, like, you know, coming up with a completely new way to visually do storytelling. And, you know, I, I thought the storytelling was great and, you know, the upsetting expectations and subverting tropes and all that. But I, 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 I just like them. I don't love them. And I know for many people, oh, they're the greatest superhero movies of all time. And I could totally see why people come across that way. I don't know why that doesn't work for me um, as much. I think I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to say why, but I thought it was good and I thought it was enjoyable and I'm glad I liked it, but I didn't need to see it a second time. And honestly, I didn't need to see the, the first, uh, uh, you know, Miles Morales Spider. I, maybe it's just I have less interest in stories based around teens and, you know, teens finding themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a great grist for storytelling, but I have, it, I have a hard time getting emotionally engaged in it. Uh, you know, although, but I, but I really like the Tom Holland Spider-Man's and they also, uh, you know, lean hard into the uh, teen trying to find themselves, you know, storytelling. But I, maybe I, but honestly, you know, the Tom Holland Spider-Man's are not my favorite MCU movies by a long shot. They definitely aren't. I mean, I really like them a lot. Spider-Man's my favorite character, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I thought they were great, but I, I honestly, I'm sorry, I don't have much to say about them. I and mean, if Jen has not seen either of them, and I'm sure she wouldn't care about them, she would just find them annoying visual noise, quite frankly, would be my bet. Anyway, uh, number three, 
Imagine you could teleport to anywhere in the universe. All you know about any given destination is what we currently know about that place today. You'll have a spacesuit with enough air to survive, enough food, uh, extra. <laughs> You'll be able to teleport back after a certain amount of time. All you need to be taken care of, but your safety isn't guaranteed. Uh, so if you could come across, if you come across a bear, you'll have to deal with it, uh, or you'd have to avoid a black hole. Where would you choose to go? Where, uh, you know, or how would you choose where to go, and where would you go, and why? Thought process, ain't pie. Anywhere in the universe. Mm. And you can't do this, oh, well, of course, I'm just going to go to a nice, hot, um, relaxing hot spring. <laughs> um, because anything else will kill me. You're, you're going to be fine. Your needs are going to be met. So yeah, the, what the in the universe do you want to experience firsthand? Interestingly, Darren did not clues, include any when, so it has to be now. No time shenanigans. Oh. Um, Although it's, it's, it's space-time, you know, but we'll just stick to that. <laughs> um, She's having a hard time with it, folks. No, I, these are these... I feel like I don't have... Yeah? I don't have brain power for this kind of a question. Mm-hmm. I... Maybe if he asked me in a month when we've been in Baja for a bit and relaxing and stuff. But yep. I've been doing a lot of planning what's and just, thinking. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? Um, Kauai. Kauai. The island in yeah. Kauai. Yeah. You just want to go back to Kauai. It was lovely. And we had a, a really nice time there and I really enjoyed myself. Okay. Um, I could say Cozumel as well. But I feel like he's saying somewhere in the universe. Like I'm supposed to pick Mars or something or I don't know. Do you not Some care of the about hu- Hubble. seeing the surface of Mars? No. Or the rings of Saturn up close? Or, or um, you know, some planet somewhere that's made entirely of diamonds? Or, you know, you know, the, the mysteries of the cosmos? Not interested? Oh, I think that, like, all the photos that we've been getting back that you can see, mm-hmm. um, it's not the Hubble anymore. It's, I can't think of the name of the... The James Webb. Yeah. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really enjoying those. But it's one thing to enjoy a picture of it. It's another thing to see it. Yeah. No. Are I know. And your eyes. you still just go and have a relaxing weekend in Kauai? I don't know. That's, that That's fine. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. I, I want to spend some more time in Italy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like he's saying we could, you know, like go back to the Jurassic Park area or something like that. No, he left again. time travel out of it. So, no time travel. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I guess I've been... Planning and looking forward to Baja, so that's where my mind's been. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't been thinking or lusting after anything else. Yeah. Um, well, I, the thing is, I i mean, you, you're trying to expand to the universe, but we have what these things say is, oh, I want to go to wherever it is in the universe that has the most advice, advanced life forms in the universe. I would just like to go hang out there for a while. That's what I would like. They would squish you like a bug. Um, the, you know, I'm going to assume the most advanced life form in the universe is probably going to be pretty live and let live. I'm going to say that's probably... Uh, they're not the most advanced if they feel like they need to squish me like a bug for some reason. But you very smartly put in the, oh, based only on what we know, and we don't know where that is. So I'm going to have to leave the easy answer out. And at which point... Hey, based on what we know, there's really not that much to see in the universe. Oh, like we just watched the first episode of For All Mankind, uh, season oh, four yeah. last night. Yeah. And, you know, it brought me to tears, the beautiful moment of the first man, uh, uh, the, the, first, uh, the first human being to set foot on an asteroid. To touch that asteroid. To, to, yeah, and, yeah and, and I was crying over it. But 
there's no denying that it wasn't just a big rock with a bunch of little rocks on it. It's, I mean, I'm like, okay, you know, the momentum, the, 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 the importance of, of humanity being able to achieve that is what um, brought me to tears. Not the rock itself. And most of what we know about the universe is pretty boring when it boils right down. I mean, or so incredibly deadly that you said, I'm, I'm not safe. I'm not in a force field. So, yeah, I don't want to go to some crazy magma planet where I'm going to die. Um, you know, so, yeah, you know, seeing the, the pillars of creation with my own eyes would be amazing. You know, I, sure, it would be. But, you know, in the same way, seeing the Aurora Borealis would be amazing. I'd love to see that, mm, too. Yes, we do want to do that. Um, but, you know, I mean, if you're talking about, I mean, I, yeah, I, I guess that'd be uh, cool to see. But just as much, just as much, I would like to get to New Zealand and visit the Hobbiton sets. You know, I would like to see that, too. So, yeah, I don't really have a, a you know, a, a, a really good cosmic answer for that because you constrained it so much and took all the easy answers out. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's uh, what what game did I we just I've we filmed the uh, a game uh it was it was uh building a space station and the space stations were the center was rotating and we were sending people out and then they were coming back and everybody watched that video and said, "Oh my god, that video is so brown. That board is so brown." And I went and looked. It was I forget, it was um, one of the moons of Titan or maybe or one of the moons of Saturn uh is where this speculative future uh, science space was. I look. Like, yeah, it looks that brown in real life. That's why it looks that brown and boring. That's what I think most of space looks like. Space is mostly empty. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, honestly, the first thing I would think of on my bucket list is I would really like to. I mean, I love how they maintain the Hobbiton sets, and I'd like to see them. I wish they would have maintained more sets of things I'd love to visit. So, yeah, probably not very good answers. Sorry. Lance says, about a year ago, my 11-year-old Yorkie Pekingese became diabetic after a few bouts of pancre- uh, uh, pancreatitis and uh, in pretty quick order developed uh, cataracts and was completely blind very soon after. Took a few weeks, but after getting used to her new state, she uh, never runs into anything. Is incredibly active for not being able to see. So my question is, if you had a dog in that situation, would you have spent the thousands of dollars to remove their cataracts? I have a lot of guilt associated with this, and I'm genuinely curious what you would do. Um, we don't have that kind of extra money, and I know there are things like uh, care credit, but I am torn on whether it's worth it. Thanks for any input, and someday I'll send pictures. What's care credit? I don't know. It's a thing the, that there are things that are like. Yeah, um, interesting. Um, boy, that is such a... I, I can totally understand your feelings and your, you know possible sense of guilt and um i can totally understand that we um haven't really had to face those kinds of choices with our dogs yet um we almost did quality of life choices Tallulah, um but the timing of her diagnosis with cancer was such that we just couldn't um actually physically care for her and the care that she would have needed um, okay. And she probably only would have had, he said, three to six months anyway, mm-hmm. if we'd done everything. So, you know, that, I don't want to say it was an easy decision to make to just not wake her up from the surgery, but there were at least logical reasons that we can tell ourselves and justify our, our decisions. So um, I know that it's really easy from an outsider's point of view to, to point, because we, we watch a lot of vet shows. Yeah. Um, I like watching animals be healed and, and stuff. And, and some of these animals do take thousands of dollars to 
um, to heal. Yeah. And sometimes I think, oh my gosh, the amount of good that, that 3,000 or 10,000 or whatever could do for, let's say, stray animals or doing a spay neuter clinic or, you know, whatever, where how much suffering could you prevent with that mm -hmm. same amount of money? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's really hard to balance the scales on that, especially if it's your dog. Yeah. So I, I would not blame anybody for spending whatever money they feel is, is necessary on their, on the care of any of their loved ones. And just because they're furry instead of <laughs> two legged doesn't to me matter. Yeah. Um, and I think it comes down to a personal decision on every particular case. Okay. I, and that's all I can say is, yeah, because we all have to be able to live with each other, with with ourselves. Well, what do you think? I mean, would you pay the thousands to remove? If... I, I, I don't want to make a judgment on that. Okay. Too hard to decide? I, I honor what you've done. And I know you've done the best you can in your situation. Yep. I, one thing... I, well, the first thing that was popping into my head as I was reading this is, you know, uh, we used to watch a lot of Caesar Milan, and he always made the point that dogs' development doesn't vision come last. Yeah, ears, right. It's it's nose, nose, ears, eyes. Right. That at the end of the day, for a dog's mental processes, they genuinely care more about what they can smell and what they can hear than what they can see. Um, amazingly, which is unthinkable you know, to us. Mm -hmm. So do not beat yourself up. You have not denied your dog about, I mean, that your dog is happy. Um, yeah. And would, I mean, would the dog be happier or just happy in a different way? Uh, you know, it would be much more crushing to lose the sense of smell, uh, which is how they truly judge their world. So, yeah, I don't know. If I were to bear that in mind, I think I... I well, it depends on financial circumstances. If money is no object, sure, of course. But money is an object. Um, would we do it now? Would we have done it in our 20s? It, you know, it's, it's tough to say. But all I can say is that your dog still has a full and meaningful doggy life. Because at the end of the day, vision was their number three sense. Um, after hearing and, uh, and smell. Yeah. So it sounds like they're still doing fine, and we look forward to seeing those pictures. Yay, we'll get pictures, yes. All right. Matt says, in a previous podcast, you mentioned riding a dirt bike. Any more stories related to this? Uh, did you ever have a street bike? I was quite into riding motorcycles for a while. Uh, I had seven at one point. My main story to that is, when I was in my mid-30s, the closest I ever came to a midlife crisis was I was really kind of bored with my commute back and forth to work when we were living in Austin, Texas. And I said, <laughs> boy, you know, this would be a lot more fun, my 15-minute drive back and forth to work, 20-minute, whatever it was, every day. If I could, I don't want a crotch rocket. I just want a nice, simple motorcycle. You know, it's a Honda 350, nothing fancy. You know, just, just a little bit more out in the open. And just a no. <laughs> no. We're going to nip that in the bud right now. That's a hard pass. Now, of course, this was 20 years ago. Nobody said hard pass back then. But if the phrase had existed, Jen would have used it. Um, because, yeah, because I did have, my, both my brother and I rode dirt bikes a lot. Uh, mine was a uh, Yamaha 125cc, who knows what, from the 70s. And my brother had a little 50cc, little Suzuki, because he was three or, you know, this was when I was seven and he was five, I guess. And, and that's just what fit us. And I loved it. And um, heck, we have e-bikes now. It's kind of the same thing, but not really. Not really. Uh, um, but no, I, I don't... 
I I remember loving it. My dad would take us out to a nearby, oh, kind of just a wasteland of forest and scrub and just big burns that we were able to jump off of and whatnot. And we would just do long afternoons there. Um, we kept those motorcycles for many years after. We brought them with us to Washington State, and but they never really got used again. Um, and I do remember one time... I, 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 my parents were gone. I must've been maybe 15, probably 14 or 15. I were gone. I got the thing back out and just took it out on city streets, uh, or not city streets. Cause we were out in the middle of nowhere, uh, trails in Lake Belfair, Washington. If you check out that on Google maps, you'll see, oh, it's just endless miles of just winding country roads. And I went out on some winding country roads and just got it up as fast as I could. Uh, you know, upwards. I don't even think I could crack 60 with it, quite frankly. So I did that once. And I don't think uh, my parents ever found out. I kind of scared the crap out of myself. It was pretty <laughs> terrifying, but also exhilarating and all because that's the whole point. And, uh, and that was like, I think that was probably the last time in my life I've ridden an actual proper motorcycle. I'm pretty sure that's the case. And like I said, in my mid-30s, I was really kind of into it. and Because a couple of my coworkers, they had done it, and they went crazy. They, you know, bought, you know, like $30,000 super machines and got all the leather and all of that. Um, and I was like, no, I just wanted just a nice, simple, little, you know, 350cc should be totally fine. Nothing fancy. But Jen said no. <laughs> I don't often say no. But I'm saying no to you now. It was probably the right choice, quite frankly. I did want you to live. Yes. For a while longer anyway. All righty. Um, but you didn't say we... I had a scooter when we met, remember? A scooter, I yes. I know, a scooter's awesome. Yes, that's true. And uh, we did have a scooter in Malta as well. Yep. And we've rented, like, when we've been in Barcelona or whatever, we've rented a scooter and yeah. zipped around the city and stuff. Yep, yep. And those are fun. But, yeah, I mean... I have no desire. I think I was on a motorcycle um, at the back... Of oh, yeah. a motorcycle. Yeah. I'm even trying to remember if it was a high my, school boyfriend or something. My stepdad, Dick, I think maybe. Oh, okay. But I mean, he had so many vehicles. He had like this Jeep. It wasn't a Jeep. It was a Toyota Jeep. It's a Toyota Land Cruiser. I yeah. don't know what. I'm not very automotive. But yeah. anyway, and he used to take us up mountaining thingies, and you know, cantilevered. Crazy! I just do not like that at all. Uh, you do not have fond memories of that. I do not like it, and uh, and same with snowmobiling. Always on the back with a snowmobile. There's no power, no control. Don't yeah. like it. We uh, both my bro- uh, my both my parents had bigger, heavier bikes when I when my brother and I were. I don't know. I was probably nine. He was probably seven or something like that. Yeah. So it was the same time that we both had our little bikes. And we would sometimes go on long, you know, long rides to go visit family and whatnot. You know, there might be like three hours on the, on the freeway or something like that. And I remember the whole time holding on to my dad because my dad was bigger and he had the bigger bike and I was bigger. So I was on dad and Ryan was on mom's bike. And me, I was terrified. I was petrified <laughs> for the whole time. But everything you were just saying. Yeah. I remember that very clearly, that feeling. Ryan would fall asleep. How did he not fall off Mom the Mom had to tie Ryan to him <laughs> with to rope. Oh, my God. Because he would just... Ah, and just... <laughs> he would fall right off. He was pretty laid back about it. And so Mom would literally have to tie him onto her with rope. This is the 70s. We didn't have anything fancier than just some rope. <laughs> were you wearing helmets? Oh, yeah. We, we, all, we all had helmets. Yeah. We, we, Ryan and I were wearing the helmets we wore yeah, okay. when we did our dirt bikes, and Mom and Dad had, you know, big, fancy, you know, the whole nine yards. Yeah. No, I, and I remember just looking over there and just seeing he was like... 
just asleep. Just, it was ridiculous. Oh, my goodness. Yep. Oh. So I, I totally forgot about that. That was very nice to remember that. Uh, all right. You mentioned news sources quite a bit, and I'm wondering if you've heard of Roca News. Their mission is to report on the important news stories without political influence, just facts. I signed up for their Daily Mail, and it caused me to go from reading almost no news due to political agendas and misinformation on both sites to reading their newsletter daily. Each day, they also have an in-depth story that is uh, usually very interesting to read. Uh, this is an example, and then you've given a link to rocanews.com. I have not heard of it. I've been seriously thinking about starting to pay for ground news, but I think I'm going to try Roku News first. Uh, you know, Jen and I, we both subscribe to the New York Times. Um, and we kind of skim that a little bit, but yeah, that's, the, about, that's about it. The digest that they have. Yeah, the daily digest that they do. Um, but no, I, I, that sounds really cool. I, I think I'm going to give it a try. Actually, these days, probably the main source of my news, I, I, uh, there's a series of channels called TLDR, which, of course, is an Too acronym for read. Too Long Didn't Read. <laughs> Um, where, but that's kind of misleading because they generally tend to do deeper dives into various and sundry topics. And I think they're very, very well sourced. It is independent media, which I was just railing against a little while ago. But, um, but I think they hold themselves to account quite a bit more than your average TikTok news source does. But Roku News sounds cool. I'm definitely going to check it out. Thank you, Matt. Okay, Michael says, uh, while Jen feeds the dogs in the background, the new, and I'm sure you folks can hear all the kibble <laughs> being spilled because Jen forgot she's wearing a microphone. Sorry. All righty. <laughs> it's Smellovision. Yes. <laughs> Michael says, the new AI-assisted Beatles song was recently released. Have you heard it? What are your thoughts on the song, which was, uh, which was a recovered demo, uh, the process, etc.? Um, yeah, I heard it. It's nice. Uh, but... Uh, I, I appreciate. Yeah, it's fine if you want to call it the last Beatles song, but it doesn't. That doesn't really work for me. Um, the end is the last Beatles song, as far as I'm concerned. The most one of the most beautiful endings of anything ever. But yeah, it was very interesting. And of course, the technology of you know using. Uh, I've messed around with some free. Occasionally, I've had. I mean, heck, Jen Ooh. was just using. For example, I could. There are AI <laughs> things I could put that last 45 seconds and just pull all that kibble pouring out. I bet. <laughs> and it's amazing, and it's available for free. And, of course, they have, you know, top-of-the-line stuff from Peter Jackson and all that. I, I thought it sounded good, but, you know, it was a work-in-progress temp track uh, from Lennon. And would, would that, was that really a final? No, it was just, it's, it's an interesting bit of trivia. But, you know what, I mean, honestly, I do not like Free as a Bird at all. You know, the last time they did this with the technology they had at the time. And I thought this was fine, too. I liked the video. I thought the yeah. Video, did you see the? I did. Oh, I didn't know you saw it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, superimposing all, you know, them from all different time, you know, and, and the joy and all that was great. And of course, it's a, it's a, it's a very soothingly melancholy song. Uh, it makes perfect sense, you know, because hey, we do miss what could have been. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the song itself is just okay. I mean, it, and like "Free as a Bird" is just, yeah, it's it's okay. Uh, um, you know, it's no jealous guy, you know, in in talking about, you know. Lennon's later works. It's a, it's a temp track. But uh, yeah, I thought it was cool, and the technology is very, very neat. And the video was awesome. I really did like the video quite a bit. Um, you know, seeing Paul and Ringo today, you know, messing, messing around with, you know, that was... Yeah, well, it was kind of a continuation of the movie um, that Peter Jackson made of mm -hmm. how Beatles music yeah, yeah, got yeah, made. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. By the way, Gert keeps walking by your camera. Yes, I know. She's bumped it several times. Okay. Folks, uh, things are a little bit more sloppy. I mean, the, the sun has pretty much gone down, so I've had to turn these lights on, which is why I'm all blown out now instead of sitting here in the dark. But it's going to be okay. Oh, don't worry about him. Nope. It's fine. All right. Um, actually, that did help a little bit. Why don't you turn it back okay. on? Well, actually, oh, because th those are the 
Those, those are, are the, the burners. Water. Those are not, yeah. How about Here. that? Turn it back off. Yeah, that does make a difference. Yeah, turn that back on. Definitely, that helps. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. Uh, uh, Zendek says, I've been a patron and follower of yours for several years, and I have a few questions. Well, first Thank of all, you. Zendek, Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you very much. It means everything. Um, I Are you aware of OpenAI's recent launch of custom GPTs? They state users can build their own custom GPTs specialized for specific tasks without needing to code. You can create these custom GPTs using natural language and upload files for context. Additionally, OpenAI's introduced a custom GPT designed to assist uh, players with board games. Uh, could you check if this link works for you? Uh, this custom GPT can help you set up a board game, explain a rule. All right, I'm going to... All right, let me see. I'm going to pause this and try to load this web page. Hold on. Uh, sadly, it says I need to have pay ChatGPT to use it, and I am not paying for ChatGPT. ChatGPT Plus requires that. So, uh, But I can quickly explain board games and card games to players of any age. Let the games begin. That's fantastic. It's a great use of, uh, of AI ChatGPTs. I think that's fantastic. Is it something you made, I assume? Um, very, very cool. Anyway, though, back to... Uh, for example, when I queried a custom G the, the, this GPT about the prosperity level in Gloomhaven, the answer was really useful. What are your thoughts on this? Would you find it useful? I think it's freaking amazing. I think um, these are not true AIs, but they're functionally just as good as. I, I use them all the freaking time. What were we just doing at your sister's house? Uh, Jen has been hearing this particular noise at certain speeds in the RV um, on the freeway. And Jen was asking Ron, my brother, our brother-in-law, you know, the, the husband of her sister, who is very mechanically inclined. He's a super, I mean, is he a professional handyman? Or he just, yeah. Do you, does he get paid for it? Does he just help yeah. everybody in the universe for free? He, I don't he know. gets paid. He, he, we, he, we don't pay him. Uh, <laughs> we get the brother discount. Yeah, we get the 100% uh, the, uh, free. I mean, so he's super knowledgeable about, uh, you know, engines and I mean, just about everything, really. Uh, he's, he's like my dad in that regard. I am super knowledgeable about how to set up routers. I bet you Ron could do that too, quite frankly. Probably. Anyway, probably. Uh, so Jen was asking him about what do you think this sound means? And you know, she was literally describing the sound as, you know that sound when you wet your finger and run it along the rim of a wine glass? It's that sound. Like everybody just knows, can call to mind what that sound is. That's not a particularly common sound people hear all the uh, time. Yes, and loads of people. It's, it's a reasonable, uh, yes, it's reasonable, but it's kind of an odd choice. So while Jen was talking to Ron about that, I was over in the background, and I just fired up Claude AI, and I said, hey, Claude AI, um, we think the engine at this speed on the highway is making this sound. What does it mean? And, um, and Claude gave the exact same answer Ron did. And I asked, you know, and, you know, I asked a bunch of follow-up questions. I asked Ron, so what do you think of the quality of these answers? And Ron said, those are scarily good. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, and, and he asked, what is the website you're using? Because I don't think people realize. I think people have a, you know, most people going about their data business do not understand just how far things have come in just the last few months. There, there are a couple of different YouTube uh, video uh, channels I subscribe to. Matt Wolf is the main one, where all they do is every week, hey, here's all the breakthroughs in AI. And every week they've got another half hour long video where literally things are progressing so exponentially fast. And you're right, I have heard a little bit about about, you know, the new concept of custom chat. Everybody can make their own personal assistants to do whatever they want. And I do think that's fantastic, too. Um, I stick with Claude because it's free, though. Uh, and it gives me everything I need. Um, you know, uh, last month, or a month before, we talked about Plunderous. My buddy is always still working on it. He recently revamped the entire rulebook and sent it to me to give feedback. And I just uploaded it to Claude and had Claude give the feedback. 
And he said, this is fantastic. This is better than anything I could have written. So, yeah, it's, it, 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 it is, it, it cannot be underscored just how much everything is going to change. And my thoughts are, it's amazing. Um, and I do not subscribe to the, oh, yeah, it's pretty much likely that as soon as they can, they're going to launch the nukes and Skynet us all. I don't think that's going to happen. It could happen, but I choose to uh, be optimistic because the arc has always moved up and it will continue to do so. You have any thoughts about AI, Honey Pie? What were your thoughts? Uh, I thought you know, it was pretty cool. When I, when I was able to give pretty much just as good an answer about your technical, weird, the most esoteric example <laughs> you could give for the sound that the the, the uh, driver's side wheel was making, <laughs> Chat AI was able to give just as good an answer. I mean, you were pretty proud of that too, right? Yeah, that was cool, pretty cool. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Um, let's see here. Oh, hold on a second. Uh, the battery is getting low on the laptop, so I'm going to have to uh, turn on the house battery. Just a second, folks. Okay, up and running again, as you can see. I think, can you see on the phone? Oh, that screen is too bright. Let's dim it down a little bit. I know most of you can't see it, but for folks who are watching, uh, oh, and then that was a whole bunch of stuff you didn't need to see. And I can't seem to actually show you what I want to show you. Come on, phone. That was going to be, all right, there it is. Right, so um, 93% on Big Blue, our Bluetti, and uh, our wattage is now 71 watts wa uh, per hour. We're getting sucked up to keep everything running. That'll get us through the night, no problem. Okay, continuing on. I believe new applications for AI in board games will emerge soon. Imagine an AI that uses a camera to observe people playing a board game and verbally corrects any mistakes in real time. Another possibility is an AI player that can participate in the game, interacting through voice and even uh, represented by realistic representation on a computer screen. These scenarios don't seem too far off. What are your thoughts on potential developments? Don't forget, AI capable of analyzing the gameplay and giving running commentary like a sporting event, saying, oh, Bob really shouldn't have uh, you know, taken the reads right then. Um, it, was, it was a reasonable move because they're just trying to deny Betty, but that left Betty uh, uh, you know, free to be able to do the family growth, and I think that's going to hurt Bob down the road. Within three years, AI will be able to watch two people playing Agricola and make those kinds of observations. <laughs> totally will be able to. Um, and you will see new YouTube channels doing exactly that. Uh, and I'll be out of a job. It, you know, it, 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 it's, it's inevitable. Um, what are your thoughts on potential? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, those are my thoughts. Yes, you're right. It's, uh, it, it, is, it is hard to get our head around just how fast this is going to change and just what, what can be done right now. And it's only going to get better, and uh, it's only going to affect our, us more and more and more. The pace of progress of AI technology seems to be accelerating, with three major entities, OpenAI, XAI, and Google, competing to get ahead of each other. Does the rapid advancement of AI excite or concern you simultaneously? What do you anticipate AI to be capable of in the next year or so? I, well, I gave a couple of examples, but I, I've, whatever I come up with, guaranteed, it'll be able to do more. Or I'll come up with something so absolutely ridiculous that it won't be able to ever do it in, in human history. So I'm you know, <laughs> trying to anticipate. Uh, I mean, it, it seems kind of pointless. But uh, I, yeah, I do not share the doom and gloom. I understand. I, you know, uh, saner heads are starting to pay attention. The Biden administration is actually starting to spearhead. Um, you know, as is the EU. I do believe saner heads will prevail, and it will get under control sooner than later. And they won't start launching nukes anytime soon. I do believe mass, mass unemployment will result. 
because there will just simply be, I mean, uh, you know, and it's interesting. It will fundamentally change. We were talking about this a fair bit with my nephew when we were visiting because, you know, he's in high school. We were, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he's like, I'm thinking about electrician. And I think he's making the right choice because, I mean, electrician will be a viable career for much longer than lawyer or cardiologist or, you know, you know, uh, you know, pick pick anything you want. But a politician, quite frankly, accountants, uh, accountants, you know, all of it. Uh, you know, white collar is going to go. White collar jobs are going to go the way of the dodo very quickly, uh, because hey, that's the kind of stuff AI is freaking perfect for, and uh, you will no longer have all the middle managers out there trying to oversee things. Um, and uh, yeah, but it'll be tougher for AI to actually reach out. Although, yeah, I mean, heck, I mean, I just saw the the soft tissue robot hands the other day that you know emulate everything. You know, it's it's all coming. It's all coming faster than we can possibly imagine, and it's going to completely. I mean, to the question that came up earlier, it's going to completely change everything. Um, and I'm sorry that's particularly vague. I don't know. Do you have anything to say, Honeypie? You've read books, although none of them written with, I mean, you need, those authors of those books you've been reading need to re- write new ones now. Yes. They need to have like podcasts yeah. so they can talk, they can update in real time they because probably things do. are changing so quickly. They probably do. Yeah. Actually, I, um, I've just gotten a couple of emails from Bill Gates cause you know, we're, we're on first term basis is there. Yeah. Um, about how he feels AI is going to be going mm-hmm. on and, and it's on his, um, you know, his website. Mm-hmm. So you could go and see, I haven't had a chance to go and read them yet, but I will. Because, um, I mean, he's, that's a guy in the know. Yeah. So that would be my suggestion. Go read that. He hasn't always gone it right, but, I mean, I'm sure he has some very strong insights, to be sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, all I can say is it's going to be for the best. Uh, but there are going to be... Some painful times. Real teething. In the transition. Yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. Okay, Honey Pie. Cameron has a picture of dogs. Uh, I've been a Rotto Runster backer for years and have listened to your podcast since the first episode. Thank you for years of entertainment and congratulations on 100. It's an amazing accomplishment. As a podcast listener, I was an advocate for moving dog pictures to the end of the podcast uh, so I could skip uh, minutes of Jen's oohs and ahs. Uh, but for once, I actually can, uh, but I can actually contribute a dog picture. My family, uh, don't get up yet, honey, okay. has uh, provided two weeks of dog sitting for Maggie, a six-year-old cavoodle. Uh, ah. In September, October, the dog sitting immediately assisted Maggie's owners and also provided us with a dog in home trial to determine suitability for our almost four-year-old daughter Amelia. Maggie was a delight, very patient with my excitable daughter sitting quietly nearby my wife. An afternoon dog walk was also a lovely excuse to go for walks with family. Uh, you get it. Yep. Uh, he's ticking all the boxes. Consequently, I expect we'll have a canine member of the family in the next year or so. Please find pictures of Maggie. I hope Jen is adjusting well with the father's recent passing. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And I love your work, Rado. I love the energy humor. Uh, Chris George brings to the R&R episodes. He's a great addition to the Rado. Yeah, Chris George is fantastic. You know, as soon as I saw him um, interacting with uh, Ruel, I'm like, oh, I don't have to be on the show anymore. And it's actually better because he is so good. Um, anyway, though, uh, let's see. Scrolling down, we've got some pictures of the, uh, what was it? The Cavoodle, I believe. So there's the cavoodle with Amelia sticking out its tongue adorably. Can you make that bigger? Because I can hardly All see right. it. It needs see. to be bigger. Yeah. Normally we do this at home on a gigantic screen. Now we're doing it on a tiny little laptop. Let's see. Where did it go? Oh, I'm going the wrong way. Do, 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 do. Nope, I've gone the wrong way. Oh, honey. You just couldn't leave well enough alone. Nope. Couldn't <laughs> grab some reading glasses. There we go. 
That's oh. all, I'm afraid that's all you get. Oh, well, still. Actually, this picture looks kind of like a sloth face. A little bit, yeah. Yep. <laughs> what a cutie, though. But then, oh. um, you know, doing what dogs do. Doing what dogs do. Oh, let's get that scrolled over a little bit. Yep. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is a silly dog. Yes. That is like a bad AI rendition of a dog. That is like a, yeah. that is like a Dolly 1.0. That is 1. almost like 0. a sloth. Look at the long uh, yes. arms. Yes, very much so. Just need just, gigantic I'm sure claws. It's just the way the neck is down. Norm probably has a bit of Norm yep. bigger neck. But still adorable. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. Was it, is that it? That's it. That's all you got. Hey, bye. Sorry. Ah. Ah. I wanted more. Yep. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah. Yep, there you go. <laughs> Sorry, folks, for the oohs and the ahs. And I mentioned, you know what, folks? Daniel, I know you've got some politics stuff here, and, and Grady, you did as well, but uh, it's been a long day. We've been driving a long time, and I think I'm just going to save that stuff for next month because I inadvertently cat snuck in some politics questions in my non-politics section. So starting next month, we'll have the politics section at the end when Jen can just tune out because it just, honestly, guys, it depresses her. To have to keep hearing all these uh, topics of conversation, and usually she just leaves the room because uh, she doesn't want to be. And honestly, it depresses me too, quite frankly. And here comes Daisy. As you can see, there's Daisy. But again, folks, uh, folks, folks. I said um, <laughs> this is this is an audio podcast, so they can't see. Daisy. Oh, Daisy's very cute. Daisy is very cute. Okay, folks, um, that was it. Another one um, done and dusted uh, from the road. Uh, interesting experiment, and we'll be back again next month. So you know what to do. Send your questions to questions at raw.com. Talk to you soon, everybody. So long. Uh, bye bye.